that's only one part of what makes Williams a great film composer and so effective. I actually think that one of his great gifts is a sympathy for the audience in that I think he's always writing and composing and thinking with what does the audience need musically here. And, you know, that's that's what all film composers, what all screen composers, I think, should, should be doing. But I think he has a gift for it. I think he has a very high kind of emotional sympathy uh, and, and uh, you know, kind of understanding of the audience and, and what, what you might need. Hello everyone, Kirk here with a new episode that I'm so excited to share with you all. Just last week, I hopped on a call with Dan Golding, an Australian writer, composer, and podcaster who I've been wanting to have on the show for ages. Dan and I first met, or met in quotes, the way that online people meet when we were both writing about video games back in the heady, brainy, blogosphere days of the late aughts. These days, he's a lecturer at Swinburne University of Technology. He's a regular host of musical concert events in Melbourne and Sydney. He is author of the book Star Wars After Lucas, A Critical Guide to the Future of the Galaxy. And along with all of that, he's also a prolific radio host and podcaster. He hosts the Australian Broadcasting Corporation's Screen Sounds show, which is a super smart tour of the world of film music. And similarly, he's a co-host of the wonderful podcast Art of the Score, in which he and two other musicians take deep dives into the compositional techniques of many beloved and famous film scores. If you like strong songs, you should really be listening to both Screen Sounds and Art of the Score, you'll like both of those shows if you like this show. So I have listened to Dan Golding do a lot of podcasting, and that's why I wanted to have him on Strong Songs. For starters, he just has a really nice voice, as you've already heard in the intro and as you're about to hear, and also because he knows a lot about the world of film music. John Williams, film composer John Williams, is one of the most famous composers in the world, and Dan has spent years chronicling his work and teaching about his music, so I could think of no better person to have on for a discussion of the man and his many indelible film scores. Though there is one of his scores that we focus on more than the other ones, we really wind up talking all about Williams's music. This was a really far-reaching conversation. Um, this one went long, sort of like my last interview with Luigi Boccia. Uh, sometimes I just go long. You know, I really do try to keep these things to an hour, but uh, lately I've been kind of letting things just go where they may, and we were really excited. We were having a great time, so I kind of just left the tape rolling, and I I figured that anyone who wanted to listen to a long conversation could do just that. So we talked all about John Williams. We focused on his Empire Strikes Back score in particular, but we also just talk about film scoring in general. And then at the end, there's a bonus conversation where we both just geeked out about our shared love of Charles Mingus and his 1959 album Blues and Roots. So yeah, that's all coming up. As always, I will just say up top that this episode took a ton of work and a ton of editing. It is no joke to edit a two and a half hour episode of any podcast, especially this one, but I'm so proud of it and I really hope that you enjoy it. I really am only able to spend the amount of time that it takes to make this kind of thing because of all the people who support me on Patreon. So if you like this show, if you like strong songs, if you like this kind of episode and you want me to be able to keep making the show, I hope that you'll consider supporting the creation of it. So there are links for Patreon and also one-time donations down in the show notes. And thanks again so much to everyone who is already a patron. All right, Dan and I have got a lot to talk about, so I I will shut up and I'll let him have the mic. I hope you enjoy this conversation. It's a lot of fun. Dan Golding, welcome to Strong Songs. Thank you so much, Kirk. Uh, it's 
really, really nice to be here as a, as a listener of the podcast and, you know, someone who's kind of, uh, <laughs> you know, I feel like I've kind of, you know, watched, well, maybe we've watched each other's uh, careers go from, <laughs> from video game blogging back in the day to mm-hmm. the various wild things that we, we do now. So it's really nice to join you. <laughs> yeah, no, it is. Uh, it is nice to finally get to chat with you. I've mm. always felt a sort of uh, like like I see a kindred spirit in you in some ways. I always think back to when we were both writing about video games, writing blogs about video games, you did a rendition of Paul Revere's ride about <laughs> Assassin's Creed 3 that was yeah. just absolutely hilarious. And I remember reading it and thinking, one, man, I wish I had written this. And two, <laughs> that Dan Golding is good. He's good because uh, I, didn't, I didn't think that very often about writing. So I really enjoyed oh, that. That's very kind of you. I remember that. That was a lot of fun. Yeah. I mean, that was such a wild a very strange video game in so many respects. <laughs> yeah, it was. I was actually just in Concord, Massachusetts, reminiscing about the time that I, as Connor in Assassin's Creed 3, defended uh, that that town yeah. from the English advances <laughs> and realizing I'd been there before. Yeah, which is funny. I think I only wrote that because I'd fairly recently been to America and been to mm. to, to Boston and Massachusetts. and Because um, like, I know that Paul Revere's Wild Ride is taught you know, in schools in America, it's not really taught in Australia. So it's really just because I've made that visit that I even knew about it. So. That's funny. It was, it was a perfect outsider's perspective. So anyways, you are, um, well, you have quite the, quite the career at this point. You're doing so many different interesting things. Uh, as we've alluded to, we've followed sort of similar paths, which is to say very winding paths yeah. through various uh, professions. But I'm curious, just to start off, if you could tell listeners just a little about yourself as a musician. How how did you get started as a musician? What was the first instrument that you learned? Uh, I mean, the, so there was a piano in my house growing up. My mom's a pianist. Mm-hmm. Uh, my mom uh, is quite interesting in that um she has perfect pitch but can't read music uh and so oh, her sister yeah. who was a little more than a year older than her um uh was was going through her exams and lessons and playing all the pieces and it took until mum was relatively advanced in her piano lessons to for someone to go hold on you're just copying what your sister plays by listening to her you can't actually read the music in front oh, of you oh wow okay so she was one of those yeah 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 and so wow. i i think i'm i i don't have perfect pitch i have pretty good relative pitch um but mm-hmm. um can't name the notes i actually wonder if part of that is because my first actual instrument was clarinet which is uh concert b flat so that always plays with your pitch a little bit i think mm-hmm. um as you would know with saxophone too um yes uh, and, uh, I think I was just always one of those people where like, I reckon probably Kirk at a guess you were probably the same thing where, where you kind of hang around the music department in school and just pick up whatever instrument is hanging around. And <laughs> <laughs> so like, uh, my school was pretty small, um, and nobody played trombone and they're like, well, we really need to get a, a, a stage band together. Dan, can you, can you try trombone? Cause we have no, <laughs> so when uh-huh. clarinet trombone and then bass guitar, when I decided I actually wanted to play something sort of semi-cool. Uh, <laughs> mm-hmm. Nice. Um, so this was all in, what? how old were you during these transitions from clarinet to bone to bass? Yeah, like like mid-teens, I'd say. Like, yeah. Oh, okay. So like 14, 15, yeah. Yeah, I, re- I started on saxophone when I was, I guess, around 13. Mm. But I do remember seeing a saxophone when I was in, I think, fifth grade. Mm. We only played recorder in grade school when huh. we were 
kind of little kids. We didn't get to play band instruments until mm. middle school. But there was one kid in the grade ahead of me who played saxophone in some sort of school production. And in my mind, he came out on stage and just sounded like Charlie Parker wow. immediately. Yeah. And it was the greatest thing I'd ever heard. I'm sure that if I could go back and actually see the performance, he was he probably sounded a little bit less good than that. But it was the coolest <laughs> thing I'd ever seen. And ever since seeing him, I, I had wanted to play saxophone. That's cool. So I, I picked up the alto sax that way. <laughs> um, clarinet to trombone is quite a transition. What did you think about the trombone after learning the clarinet? Well, mostly it made my teeth wobble. <laughs> I don't know if sure. that's too much information, uh, but but clarinet, you kind of, you know, it pushes your teeth backwards because it, you know, like saxophone. Right, you roll your lip in and mm. over your lower teeth. Uh, whereas trombone pushes against the the kind of wide part of your mouth, the, the, the upper mm-hmm. parts, the, the big round um, mouthpiece uh, and kind of pushes your teeth out. <laughs> this is yeah, really right. Kind of, it's a concave versus convex embouchure, I suppose. Yeah. Uh, but no, it was, I mean, you know, it, it is a dramatically different instrument. You kind of make all of the yeah. pitches yourself. Um, I, I've heard um, there was a very famous Australian uh, French horn player who um, was an advocate for his instrument. He died about a year ago. And I remember listening to an interview with him where he talked about French horn as the only instrument where you kind of, you have to make every note yourself because it's such a hard instrument to pitch. You kind of create all the the notes. Now, French horn is actually the only brass instrument that I don't really play. I have one, um, but it's very hard, um, I think. It is very hard. My wife was a French horn player, actually, in our high school band together. And I have great respect for the fact that she played the instrument. She always downplays her skills. But Hmm. um, when I was in middle school... Uh, we had a sub in our band class. And so I was a sax player and one of my good friends, Andy, mm. was a, a French horn player. And we all switched instruments on the sub to be jerks. You know, <laughs> yeah, it was yeah, kind of yeah. a prank that we play. <laughs> so then the sub gets up there to conduct the band and we're all terrible and everyone doesn't even know how to hold their instrument. And then our actual band director came back and was livid, just so angry with us. And as punishment, we each had to play a, a test, take a playing test wow. on the instrument that we had switched to. Wow. So I had to try to learn how to play, I don't know, like an F major scale on the French horn. And it was the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. Yeah. It was so difficult <laughs> as a saxophone player. So t- from trombone, you went to bass. That's a much more uh, reasonable transition. <laughs> I actually know there's a great trombonist bassist in the Bay Area, um, Adam Thies, who runs this whole jazz collective there. Mm. It's the first time I saw somebody play trombone and bass at the same time. Hmm. And then the more I thought about it, the more logical it is. Both bass clef instruments kind of sit in the same zone. Mm. And um, there's kind of nothing cooler than an electric bass player sort of looping a bass line and then picking up a trombone and going off. Yeah. Um, so what did you think of that transition from the trombone to the bass? Well, I, I mean, I think that for me, I mean, I, I, I love playing bass. I still do. Um, and it's probably the instrument that I, I think realistically that I got most proficient in. I did like my, mm. my end of high school exams on clarinet. Um, but actually I think, you know, like electric bass players don't always read music. I can read music for, you know, bass clef and, um, but also improvise and stuff like that. So I think, I, you know, mostly when people ask me what instrument I play, as I say, I play a lot of instruments quite badly, but, you know, well enough to fool someone who's not a musician and definitely not well enough to fool mm-hmm. someone who knows what they're talking about. But bass, I, I know think something I, about that. Yeah. <laughs> um, but bass, I, I do okay on. And I think, I think for me, what I really love about bass, what I still love about 
basis. I was very good friends. I still am very good friends with the, the, the best drummer at my school and kind of the relationship between drums and bass in almost any Man, genre yeah. of music mm-hmm. is that really bass is kind of like a rhythmic instrument that kind of happens to be pitched. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and I think, you know, there's something really beautiful and kind of technical and um, communal about the way mm. that the, the drum player and the bass player kind of have to interlock, I think, and really be, you know, in that pocket, in that groove, working together um, to form the, you know, the ground that everything else sits on in, in most genres of music. Um, I, I loved that experience and I still think it was, you know, a lot of fun, even though, you know, we formed a band after high school. We went through a few bands, as uh, I'm sure is not uncommon. Um, and uh, I was the one with the car, so I was the one having to pack up his uh-huh. drum kit and, you know, Very drop important. it off. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> An important role. Yeah, I like that. A, a rhythmic instrument that happens to be pitched mm. and also a melodic instrument that happens to be at the bottom of the ensemble. Yeah. Yeah. The bass really sits at the intersection of a lot of uh, cool parts of any given arrangement or of any given band. Mm. Um, I just did an episode on Tower of Power, Rocco Prestia and Dave Garibaldi, mm. the bass and drum combo in that band incredible and also we'll be talking about jazz a little bit later but um jimmy cobb and paul chambers yeah. on um kind of blue one of the most incredible just the ride symbol and baseline like yeah. the sort of synchronicity and groove between those two guys uh, yeah it is a special relationship for sure and even as well outside of jazz i mean i i, I think it's i mean uh, one of the genres of music that i really got into at the time reggae you know like and drums and mm-hmm. bass in reggae is a very interesting combination like sly and, and robbie um like mm-hmm. i went to see them in in the uk when i was in london once and like you know the way that they interlock is just it's beyond like i don't know how they do it it's incredible incredible the kind mm-hmm. of almost just musical communication between the two yeah Yeah, it's one of the one of the great uh, musical relationships. Something I was always jealous of as primarily a horn player was that that sort of relationship that that rhythm section players can have with one another. Well, nice. And now here you are. You're you've come so far. You're talking. You're writing books about Star Wars. You're making podcasts about music. You're doing all kinds of things. What was the um, uh, you know the transition from being a bass player who liked playing reggae to doing what you do now? Well, I mean, I I always. It's weird to say, but I kind of almost still feel a little bit like an imposter sometimes when it comes to music. Everybody does, man. Everyone does. It's fine. Yeah, (laughs) we all do. Well, I mean, for example, on on the the uh, the film music podcast that uh, that I've been part of, Art of the Score, and we've now transitioned into doing live shows with like the Melbourne Symphony Orchestra, Sydney Symphony Orchestra, an amazing podcast that everyone should listen to. Thank you. That's no, that's very kind. It's it's a lot of fun, but I feel very lucky to be part of it. And I've said a few times to uh, Andrew and Nick, my co-hosts that I'm the least qualified uh, to be there because even though I have a PhD, (laughs) it's a PhD in, um, you know, what we call screen studies, I guess, like film and and games. Um, And my Mm -hmm. highest qualification in music is is high school, Uh, whereas, you know, uh, Nick 
is a world-class conductor who has studied endlessly at universities in, in Australia An amazing and America. piano player. I'm so jealous of his piano playing yeah. every time I listen to your show. <laughs> uh, and Andrew uh, did, I think, a master's in jazz performance. Like, you know, they're, mm-hmm. they're both seriously accomplished. And I just sort of, you know, I, I fiddle around. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I guess I guess um, to answer your question, I mean, it, it, all, all of that is kind of related in that... Um, you know, when I, I was in bands all through undergrad, um, I was actually part of a, 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 a reggae band where, where it was kind of a, a political um, a political group, actually. Um, it was oh, called, sure. called the Dilly All-Stars and they were, they were a very long-standing um, musical group. Still one of the most famous bands to have, a, well, to kind of come out of East Timor, which is one of the closest nations to Australia and at the, um, not at the time that I joined, but about five to ten years before I joined, uh, East Timor was fighting for its independence from Indonesia and had a big referendum oh, and they, they kind of wrote and distributed independence songs. Um, it's a very, very interesting band history. Um, but uh, I started um, my PhD and decided that, uh, you know, I had to be serious about that and the, the dreams of a career in music had to go out the door. So I, I quit the band and I, I was like, yeah, okay, I'm going to, going to do this academia thing. And <clears throat> I did that for, for some time. I still, that's my actual job, uh, is I'm an mm-hmm. academic. Uh, but I think somewhere along the way, um, I mean, I, I think in about, 2015 I was running a video games festival because I was into games from a kind of academic perspective that's still one of my major areas uh, and I was hanging out with um, uh, these game developers uh, four, four guys here in Melbourne um, who go by the name House House we were showing one of their games <laughs> at a public uh, their first game sorry we were showing their first game which still wasn't finished at that point at a, a big public kind of square with a screen we set up like a, a, a little lounge room um, like a couch and a you know coffee table yeah, well, yeah. and lamp. I've been to them. They're lovely. Those kinds of hang exactly. game demo spaces. Yeah, uh, and I just kind of said to them, "Hey, what are you doing for music in this game?" And they were sort of <laughs> like, oh, "I don't know, really. Like, you know, we have a few ideas, but and I was sort of like, I don't know. Actually, I think I could do something." And they're like, "Oh, okay." And I just kind of recorded some music, I think, over the weekend and sent it to them. And they're like, oh, sure, cool, let's do that. And that's how I became a video game composer. <laughs> so that's their first game, Push Me, Pull You. And next thing you know, you're writing the score for this indie sensation game, Untitled Goose Game. Wait. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, an incredible implementation of music in a video game, and a really incredible game, in my opinion. Anyways. Thank you. Um, it was incredible to be to be part of that. But yeah, like I, I kind of feel like I've 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 used this metaphor before because you know, like um, uh, my major love is film music still, which I'm sure we're going to talk a lot about. But um, Bernard Herrmann. Uh, is one of my favorite mm. composers. I've done a lot of research in an academic context. I guess these, these, you know, these are the the flip sides of 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 
of the coin. I'm not sure what metaphor I'm going for here, but you know, my academic and music <laughs> lives have continued to intertwine. Mm-hmm. And I remember reading an interview with Bernard Herrmann from the sixties or seventies. Actually, I think it was a lecture that he gave at a um, college in New York um, where he said, uh, you know, like film music is, is like those old maps where, you know, there's just these giant blank spots where it's kind of like, don't really know what, what land exists there. Um, and we're all kind of filling it in. And these days I think film music has filmed in a lot of those, (laughs) but to Mm -hmm. me games, I was kind of like, you know, like, I feel like there must be a world where everybody else is out there, with a complete map and I'm the only one, you know, with all these giant (laughs) blank spots. And I remember Mm -hmm. uh, when um, Untitled Goose Game came out, the composer, uh, uh, I always get the name wrong. It's like C184, the the Minecraft composer. Oh, C418. C418, thank you. Yeah. No, I do that too, though. I get it wrong. Yeah. Wonderful guy. Great, great composer. Yeah. Well, he tweeted like, uh, because there was like an interview about how the music worked in Untitled Goose Game. He tweeted like, oh, uh, I I, I just assumed this was some incredibly complicated system um, using MIDI that I had no idea about. Uh, Amazing to see how it works. And I was like, (laughs) you thought that? You did Minecraft. You make music for the the most successful video game of all time. Yeah, I was like, what is going on? (laughs) So, yeah, I kind of still feel like, I mean, that was a very kind of illustrative moment for me because I I think it it kind of revealed that, especially when it comes to game music, like everyone's just kind of making it up as they go, um, that there's a lot, a lot still out there to be kind of figured out, I think. Yeah. Yeah, that's, um, I think that's a really cool way of looking at it and a cool reason to be drawn to video game music. And I get you on it feeling a little like uh, film scores have had a lot of the map filled in. Mm. There's always that surprising moment when you realize, oh, there was a little part of this map that no one had gone to. Yeah. <laughs> but a lot of the map does seem filled in. And that I guess that's a good segue into our first topic. We're going to be talking about John Williams, a composer that I know you're very familiar with and um, have spoken and written eloquently about for many years. And we're going to talk about one of his scores in particular. But before we get into that, I guess, what uh, what is just your relationship with John Williams in general? Um, it's, yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I think, uh, every year on my Spotify wrapped, it's far and away. I'm John Williams number one. Uh, <laughs> well, you like John Williams again yeah. this year. <laughs> I, I, I literally don't think I've ever had a different result than John Williams at number one over the years they've been That's doing so that. That's so funny. Um, is it always the same piece or does it change? <laughs> no, no, the, the, the piece does change, especially, and, and I will say as well, actually, that that's not even... Like it's surprising to me that that happens because the scores of his that I listen to the most um, aren't on Spotify. I listen to them through mm. other services because they're releases that aren't there. So even then, um, but I mean, I think I have, you know, John Williams, his music has, I, I think, defined a lot of my engagement with with music in, in general. Uh, I grew up a, mm. a big Star Wars fan, but you know, even before Star Wars, um, I had a rainy day kind of tape that my mum would get out if I was at home, you know, with a cold or it was a rainy day or whatever. That was um, The Adventures of Robin Hood, the Errol Flynn film, uh, Michael Curtiz from 1938. 
eight, I think it is, uh, and that has a great soundtrack by Eric Wolfgang Korngold, um, which I loved. It wasn't until I was at university that I was like, oh, this is considered like a formative soundtrack for the kind of golden age Hollywood sound. When I was a kid, I was just like, this is some random Robin Hood movie that I'm the only person mm. in the world knows exists and mm-hmm. I love that music. So I think by the time I even saw Star Wars for the first time when I was like, I don't know, eight, I think, um, I was primed. I was so ready to hear that kind of music. Uh, and it acted as a bit of a gateway into the uh, the classical canon, I suppose. I mean, I'd sort of... Um, the Melbourne Symphony Orchestra does some free concerts here and I'd been to a few as a kid, um, like in a, in a big um, bowl, kind of like the Hollywood Bowl in a way. It's it's the Sydney My Music Bowl, a big open space. Um, but I think falling in love with the music to Star Wars, the first soundtrack in particular has got all these really clear allusions to classical music and sort of, you know, piecing that back together really got me engaged with music more broadly. But I think, you know, I, I was always a bit of a soundtrack obsessive as a teen, um, even though it was kind of, you know, not, super cool uh at that point i think <laughs> i kind of maybe hid that away a little bit but as i started to you know become more of a i suppose through academia and my my journalism i guess um or broadcasting whatever you want to call it um sort of became more of a i don't know i don't know someone who was allowed to engage with whatever music I wanted to, I really just honed in on that. I mean, I kind of, I've always taken the, and this, this applies to video games as well. I've always taken the kind of, um, the, the kind of approach that, that low art should be treated like high art and high art should be treated like low art, like see the kind of <laughs> vulgarness in, in, in great yeah, classical yeah. works and art, but, but see the complexity in, in, trash um not to say that film music is trash by any means but i think you know taking a certain seriousness towards it it just shows so so much um and i've really loved doing that i mean so now i do a radio show for the national broadcaster about film music and i feel like you know i've i've been allowed slash encouraged to embrace my john williams fanboy uh through that (laughs) as well and kind of publicly advocated for um for his music in in many respects and film music in general there's an interesting thing that happens for me when i sit down and listen to a star wars score uh, for this conversation i listened to episode four Mm -hmm. a new hope and then through empire strikes back and when i listen to it away from the film, it opens up to me in a way that's pretty remarkable. When yeah. I was a kid, I remember watching Star Wars. I think that they kind of all blur together for me a little bit, mm-hmm. but I remember seeing the first one. Mm-hmm. What I thought of as Star Wars, of course, is episode four. And um, the music just sounded like part of the movie to me. I mm-hmm. It was so iconic, even then. I mean, yeah, I was probably yeah eight or nine years old. So this was in the late 80s. 
And I didn't think of it as Star Wars, you know, the score to Star Wars. I didn't think of it as John Williams in front of the London Symphony Orchestra, like conducting this music. I just thought of it as, well, this is the movie and this is the music that plays during this scene. Mm. And then um, I can remember actually sitting down and listening to it must have been the soundtrack to Empire because it was the Imperial March. Mm. This was a little bit later probably when I was in middle school or high school, and listening to the Imperial March and realizing that it sounded almost exactly like Holst's Mars. And I think upon further reflection, they're not even that mm-hmm. similar. Just drawing that connection between the sound of the strings, that um, marcato like that string attack that has that kind of clicking sound mm. that you can hear sort of echoing through the hall where they recorded it and realizing, oh, yeah, this is just music yeah. um, as I sort of listen to it and having many other thoughts like that yeah. and the way that that opened the music up to me. And I started to realize just how complex and beautiful his orchestrations are. Because, mm. I mean, yeah, I mean, high art, low art, sure, maybe it's not Shostakovich or Holst or whatever, but it's incredible stuff. I mean, mm. especially compared to I don't know, not to, to sound like a you know boomer or whatever, but compared to a lot of modern music, yeah. it's wild listening to this classic sounding, like lush, beautiful orchestrations. And even even without getting into the actual music itself or the, the quality of it, just the, the, the recording and performance style. Mm-hmm. Um, I was talking about this with a friend the other day, actually, is that, uh, you know, hearing an orchestra like the London Symphony Orchestra, the LSO, I mean, they were under the, the kind of leadership of André Provence um, at, at the time that they recorded the original trilogy. Um, and they were, they're, you know, a band that plays together, right? All the time. Yeah. And to be given a soundtrack like that. Now, even then, and especially today, most soundtracks were recorded by scratch orchestras. You might see them credited Mm -hmm. as like the Hollywood orchestra or something like that. But a scratch orchestra, people who don't play together, who are freelancers who are brought together for this particular project. Uh, But the LSO were not that. And the recording quality, like especially in the first film, it's not that good. Mm-hmm. It's kind of part of the magic of the recording, but it is noticeable. Yeah. Uh, and, like, there are a couple of mistakes as well, even in oh, The yeah. Empire Strikes Back. The horns school. occasionally yeah. blow notes, which French horn, very hard instrument. <laughs> um, I sort of love that. I do love the mistakes. It's just it's such it's such a human performance and and mm-hmm. it, you know as I said even before talking about the quality of the music or anything like that you can you can even look at John Williams' recent Star Wars scores Rise of Skywalker being twenty nineteen you know not that long ago and although I think the music is of a very high quality um, we can debate the film all day but um, <laughs> the it's perfect, right? It's it's perfectly recorded. It's beautiful. Um, it's a scratch orchestra. Um, there's no mistake. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. And 
and it just you know I, I I don't know I love the human quality of the original trilogy soundtracks. Yeah, you can really hear something in the performance. Just it's something、mm. that's true of Star Wars across the board.、Uh, also in the performances of many of the supporting actors, these、mm. sort of English stage actors, people they just brought in, reading these lines about Death Stars. Where、yeah. at the time, it's very fun to think about what it was like for them at the time. Just thinking, whatever, this is just some movie,、mm. not really realizing that it was going to go on to become so iconic that they would have a massive fan wiki entry about their like, three line <laughs> character. And I think. It was probably similar for the performers, who、mm. it's really cool music. I'm sure they had a good time playing it just on its own. But now, like you say, they bring in a scratch orchestra, a bunch of studio musicians to record, and you know that's the greatest gig. If you're a principal trumpet player, you're, you know you can play a lead trumpet part, and you get the call to record the new Star Wars movie.、Mm. Like it's going to be the absolute top players. In L.A., will be the ones to go record that, or in England, wherever they recorded it. The the, the prequels were in、uh, England with the LSO, but、in、the, but the、okay. sequels the sequels are all Hollywood in America. Yeah,、mm. right. Okay,、mm. so the sequel trilogy then yeah. it'll be the top players. They'll play、mm. it perfectly, like you said, but it won't have that sort of、uh, that same energy to it. Really, even the prequels wouldn't have the same energy because by then Star Wars had become such a phenomenon. That's right.、Uh, And I mean, I, there's a great story about、um, the LSO recording Star Wars, and it was actually day one of、uh, the trumpeter Morris Murphy, Maurice Murphy his、um, his first day with、um, the LSO. He played、oh, with、really? them for forty years, and the、wow. first note that he played <laughs> was that. <laughs> like that, and wow,、uh, you know, apparently the way <laughs> that's unbelievable.、Yeah. I can't believe that's true. <laughs> <laughs> and, and apparently, like John Williams describes it as like a shock wave going around the recording、uh, the hall that they were in, like this note that just you know, as he said, has reverberated almost through soundtrack history. Like it's just it's the loudest、wow. B flat. That you can possibly imagine、uh, in in the trumpet's screaming range, you know, like、mm -hmm. yeah, he really smacks it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> So we're going to talk about Empire Strikes Back in particular, which has long been my favorite、mm. Star Wars movie and my favorite Star Wars score. I think that you said on Art of the Score that it's yours too, but I don't want、no. to put words in your mouth. So, what makes this sound this score special, and and what do you think of it in general?、Uh, I mean, look, I think I oscillate depending on what day you ask me,、uh, whether it's the original one that I love the most or this one. I think probably、mm. this one, just simply because while the original was so groundbreaking. Uh, and established so many things about、uh, not just how film worked、um, from that point on and how blockbusters worked, but also with the soundtrack industry. I mean,、um, there were soundtracks for sale and, and kind of singles from films and stuff like that previously,、mm -hmm. but nothing like Star Wars. I mean. A disco remix by Miko was number one on the charts <laughs> in December 1977.、Mm -hmm. Like it was everywhere, you know. Bill Murray did the Star Wars song on Saturday Night Live. Like, I recently watched that whole sketch. That、yeah. sketch is way too long, but the part where he sings the lyrics <laughs> to Star Wars is very good. It's a very、yeah. funny sketch overall. <laughs> Nothing but Star Wars. Give me the Star Wars. Don't let them in. 
Um, uh, you know, and and I think the reason why I probably, you know, Empire edges ahead by like a nose, by like a hair on the end of its nose, is the fact that the first film is so replete with classical illusions. Like George Lucas originally wanted to score Star Wars like 2001 with um, uh, needle drops, record drops uh, um, mm-hmm. of, of classical music. Um, and John Williams was sort of like, no, I... I think we can do better than that. Um, you know, I want to hear a bit of material that relates to Ben Kenobi throughout the movie. We, you know, um, he actually writes this in the liner notes, the original film. Um, and, but you can still hear that. Like, you know, when they're on Tatooine, it's like the, the second half, the beginning of the second half of Rite of Spring, almost note for note. Hi everyone, Kirk here as I'm editing the episode, and I just want to illustrate Dan's point there by fading what you were just listening to, which is an excerpt from John Williams' score for Star Wars Episode Four: A New Hope. And now here is part two of Stravinsky's Rite of Spring, and I mean, they really do sound very similar. Right? Like going back to Star Wars? <laughs> Mars, the bringer of war, is is kind of how the film opens after the crawl with the 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 uh the Star Destroyer attacking the blockade runner, the dun da 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 dun 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 dun. It's like yes, mm-hmm. that's that's Mars. Um and it's very effective. <laughs> Um, very effective, but um, it, it is in some ways, I think it's a score that is reviving a particular type of Hollywood sound dramatically effectively, like, you know, that corn gold that I mentioned before, uh, and combining it with this kind of classical sensibility with John Williams's own um, uh, oddball kind of style in there. Like, there's a lot of jazz. Um, yeah, yeah, that's true. He's a he's a jazz player, I think, by heart. Originally, he used to run uh, uh, Johnny Williams's big band uh, before mm-hmm. he really became a, a, a screen composer. And he was the pianist for Henry Mancini as well. If you hear the original Peter Gunn, the do 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 do, that's that's John Williams on piano. Really, I never knew that. What a fun fact! Yeah, that's, that's really cool. <laughs> And so you can hear like, you know, in uh, tracks like uh, TIE Fighter Attack, uh, where there's this really groovy rhythm, like dun 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 I'm just humming endless Star Wars now, uh, <laughs> but like that's not a classical great being recycled. That's pure Johnny Williams kind of you know working that into a into a sci-fi film. Uh, but the, but whereas there are hints of that, I think Empire is where he really puts his own stamp on it. Um, and to mm. me, really, I think you know there's. The, 
my relationship with John Williams is such that uh, you asked before, um, I've, I've been needed to put together kind of overviews of his career uh, for some time now. Um, for his 90th birthday, I did like a five-part radio series and kind of so seeing the landmark landmark scores along the way um, is really Empire, I think, is, the, is where he stops being this kind of emerging brilliant force out of Hollywood that is kind of reshaping things to being, okay, now Hollywood sounds like John Williams. Mm. And mm-hmm. I think from Empire, then you get, you know, Raiders, you get E.T., um, you get, uh, you know, all those great 1980s hits that he did all the way up to probably Jurassic Park is the next landmark for him, I'd say. Where- I mean, I think the Home Alone soundtrack is a real landmark. But that's just me because yeah. I have fond memories of it. But no, yeah, 93 <laughs> Jurassic Park, definitely one of his other most iconic soundtracks. Well, I think as well, one of the reasons that I highlight that is because I think his action music almost becomes its own language by that point. You know, in in Empire, you get so many amazing action set pieces where the music is is beautifully following along with what's on screen. I think from Jurassic Park onwards and like the Star Wars prequels, John Williams, it's almost like he's got an action scene and you like wind him up with a, a little a little key on the on the back of his back and you press go and he just like <laughs> does this wild action music where like it's virtually impossible to even piece together. Like I don't know what. What's the time signature? What's the key? Like, it's <laughs> what are the strings doing in particular? A lot of times, you can hear the rhythms in the brass, but his strings just—I mm. feel like playing in the violin section for John Williams' score would just be—it's a type of rhythmic playing yeah. and a speed of glissando, <laughs> like of just those incredible yeah. runs that they do. Where I'm not really even sure how you would notate it, let alone how you would play. It. I truly, I so I mean, I've been involved in quite a few of the the live film concerts that orchestras do these mm-hmm. days, or here in Australia anyway. I know they do them around the world. Oh yeah, and they do them here too. They're a I, lot of fun. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, where uh, they'll, they'll play the whole soundtrack um, with with the film mm-hmm. on the screen in the background. Uh, and for a lot of those, they can be pretty easy gigs for, for performers uh, because, sure. you know, if you're doing a, even a Lord of the Rings, which I think is a beautiful soundtrack, but um, there's a lot of um, semi-briefs for the um, mm-hmm. strings um, in, in that film. Uh, whenever it's a John Williams one, like the orchestra <laughs> is like barely keeping up. Um, Everyone's pushing up their reading glasses yeah. and sweat running down <laughs> people's faces. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. It's not, it's like, in fact, you sometimes get orchestras who aren't as familiar or players who aren't as familiar with 
film music and they go, oh, great, a film music gig. And then they turn up and mm-hmm. see the, 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 the absolute, you know, sea of black notes in front of them uh, <laughs> and go, oh, you know, like, oh, no, this is not the easy gig that I thought it was going to be. Um, and, and you know, I mean, I've, I've spoken with the conductors who, who run these things, not just Nick Buck, but um, a few others um, who, who've done them. I remember speaking with uh, Benjamin Northey who conducted uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark and that the, um, the Desert Chase cue in that film. He's like, I think that, yeah. that's the hardest thing I've ever conducted. That's an unbelievable sequence of music. I will put a clip from it behind us as we talk right now. Yeah. I was recently watching, boy, what was it? That's some YouTube music like video essay or something that was about that sequence talking about the score and the way that it uh, interacted with the action on screen. And it was unbelievable. Just zooming out and listening to it because I hadn't sat and listened to the Raiders score in a while, which of course that was a year after uh, Empire. So he's he's using a lot of the same tricks. You can even hear a little bit of Raiders of the Lost Ark in the Empire's in the Empire score at times. Kirk here as I'm editing the episode, and I'm just gonna let this cue play for a little bit because it's really good. Just listen to this stuff. Yeah, I think uh, particularly when they're in uh, the, the the cave and they fly the Millennium Falcon out of the cave, um, and the big slug chases after them. Mm-hmm. I think the hand puppet. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think yeah, the beautiful hand puppet. Um, I think uh, that to me, I'm like, yeah, that's um, <laughs> totally, totally just um, should be in Raiders. This is pure Indiana Jones. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I mean, aside from that sounding kind of Indiana Jones-ish, which it definitely Mm -hmm. does, those French ones, I mean, that's one of the moments I had in mind before when I was talking about there are mistakes because... (laughs) Yeah, no, they're they're, they're making it happen, you could say. They're getting there in the end. (laughs) I mean, it's it's deathly difficult writing. Yeah, give me a break. Yeah, uh, but also, yeah, like uh, I think uh, if it was a contemporary film uh, soundtrack, you'd be you'd be isolating those French horns, you'd be dropping them into just that moment, and just you know getting them to nail that perfectly. Because, mm-hmm. geez, it's hard, and they they don't they don't quite nail it. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's true, and yet, right? Nothing is really lost in the in the final yeah. product when yeah. there's a little bit of flubbing going on in the brass on an extremely difficult section. Mm. If anything, it kind of adds to the chaos of the of the sequence. Mm. Listening back to, um, is it called the duel? Is that the piece mm-hmm. where um, the string section, the the strings and the brass are just in this 
completely bananas place on that track. It's near the beginning. It's when so the, you know when when Luke and and Vader are facing off. Oh yeah. The experience of listening to that, for me anyways, yeah. is totally wild compared to even watching the film. Because in the film, there's so much going on. Mm. And in particular, for me at least, the lower parts of the arrangement mm. just don't stand out as much because they tend to clash with sound effects in the mm. film and what's going on. Mm. You just, I don't get, I never got quite the same appreciation for how he uses the low end of the orchestra. Mm. He's using every pocket on the jean short, as we say, like he's using the <laughs> whole, the whole thing. Yeah. He's got every aspect of the orchestra doing so much work at once put together so beautifully to create this just power and fear and chaos. It's so amazing <laughs> to just sit and listen to it. Do you know, I mean, I think you've picked my favourite cue uh, from Star Wars, actually, there. Oh, man. Um, <laughs> it's an amazing one. Yeah. Uh, it's just so, it is so incredible. Like, there are so many different things I think I could talk about. Well, actually, I know I could talk about this single cue for, you know, the next three hours because I actually, <laughs> there's another podcast run by a friend of mine called Xanthi Tan, uh, Chris Xanthi Tan, uh, and they, it's a Star Wars music minute and um, they, they have it. So there's um, a, a podcast for every five minutes of, of score. And I managed to be their guest uh, uh, on that, um, that, that section of cue. So to I, talk about that, those five minutes of the score. Those That's five quite minutes. a five minutes of the score to talk about. Uh, I think I think we got close to three hours for that. <laughs> well, give me a, give me the the Cliff's Notes version. I give mean, me the short version. I, I think what what you were highlighting was the amazing playing and the the strings just going wild. Goodness gracious! Uh, yeah, uh, it is it is just absolutely all over the place. Like in 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 the most amazing sense. Um, I mean, I also think that Empire is one of the great scores for tuba, uh, and you get the wonderful low brass sure. at the start there, the boom, bum, bum. It's this kind of fate inevitability, um, kind of, you know, bringing us into, into, okay, Vader's taking charge now, because the other thing that we forget about the rest of that fight often is that it's unscored. It's one of the few action sequences in the whole film that doesn't have music. Um, they're just kind of fighting each other with sound effects and dialogue um, for the rest of that scene in, in Bespin. And then finally Vader's kind of like, we've had enough. Okay. Now, now yep. you know, playtime's over yep. and the music kicks mm -hmm. in and it's really effective. Yeah. 
there's kind of the the strings. What the strings are doing is kind of on a metapier, I guess. Or you know, some people would call that Mickey Mousing. I'm not quite sure. Mickey Mousing um, is a pejorative mm-hmm. term usually in film music, where like if someone walks up the stairs, it's like bloom, 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 um, then falls mm-hmm. down. Um, obviously, mm-hmm. you know, uh, hence the the name coming from cartoons, uh, and mm-hmm. it's often looked down on as simplistic in film scoring. I actually dramatically disagree. I think there's a lot of power in Mickey Mousing. And also it is incredibly hard to do, uh, technically. Uh, <laughs> it, you know, the kind of where the origins of this um, comes from uh, Carl Stalling, who was, I think, a genius. Mm, sure. Oh, yeah. Stalling did a lot of the the Warner Brothers, the um, Merry Melodies and uh, Looney Tunes cartoons, but he actually started with Disney. And before that, he started as a silent film accompanist. And Disney went and saw him perform a silent film and was like, hey, uh, our animations are about to have sound. Can you come and write some music for us? And um, Nice. The, the rest is history, really, but um, he pioneered essentially a mathematical system of aligning frames per minute with beats per minute um, for calculating, mm. you know, if I know there's going to be someone being hit on the head with a stick on frame 16, you know, of, of, of minute 32 or whatever, then that translates to the third beat of the fourth bar running at, you know, beats per minute you know, 72, like it's right. It's right. That makes sense. Highly mathematical, really well, because animation is so planned out ahead of time. You can write the music according to it, which is of course, much more difficult to do with live action. And, and the reason that he went to Warner is, uh, he and Disney had a falling out as Disney was wont to do, um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> over whether there was the opportunity to do music first. So to write the music and then do the animation to it. Um, oh, interesting. And that's actually what ended up happening is when he went to Warner's, uh, he had the same argument and they said, look, we'll do two. We'll do one series where you can do your music first and we'll call that Merry Melodies. And we'll do another where you do their visuals first and the music to accompany it and then we'll call that Looney Tunes. So they're all kind oh, of really? mirror image names and it also kind of relates back to the Disney silly symphonies, which is where this comes from. They're all kind of synonyms for each other. It's anyway, that's funny. Yeah. Um, I'll connect. So I, I don't, I don't think of Mickey mousing as pejorative, but that's a very long explanation. The strings are making the sound of the wind in a sense. Um, in this scene. Yeah, right. Like, I guess that's, they're evoking something Mm. in the scene and there's this perilous drop and you can kind of feel Mm. that whether that's because of this kind of string playing accompanying those sorts of scenes. And I don't know that when I think of Mickey Mousing, I think in Raiders, there's some Mickey Mousing. Mm. It feels to me like William's sense of humor coming through when there's an actual like, like on a punch or something Um, or, you know, a a cue happens right with a big brass hit. It happens infrequently, but when it does, it tends to seem funny to me, almost winking. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, like, 
a lot of people hone in on John Williams' use of leitmotif, which actually I'm kind of surprised in a way that we, that's not the first thing that we spoke about because it is the first thing that comes to mind for a lot of people. Oh, sure. That, that yes. he, and, and that, that, that's on me really, but that he, that he revived this idea of leitmotif in a really big way, which goes all the way back to opera. Um, mm-hmm. People talk about Wagner and leitmotif, even though actually I don't think Wagner used that word. Um, but essentially mm. to, to describe um, having a melody or a musical idea that's associated with a character or sometimes a place or even an idea. Um, but essentially when Darth Vader comes on screen, the Imperial March plays, that's leitmotif. Um, and John Williams uh, certainly really, you know, uses that in all of his soundtracks, even his relatively early ones. There are a few that don't like uh, images for Robert Altman, but certainly Star Wars, Indiana Jones, all those kinds of big ones Mm -hmm. um, use leitmotif in a big way. And, you know, it means that when, um, when Luke's under pressure, his melody plays in a, in a, you know, compressed or or perhaps sad way. There's a lot of sad Luke across empire. Yeah. That, that, that minor key rendition of Luke's theme is a, is a really, uh, common running theme through empire and really beautiful sounding i've i don't actually think of it as that dark i guess because i've heard it so many times now Mm. it just feels a little i guess a little less happy but not necessarily unhappy i don't know how to describe it yeah i mean it's still a fundamentally happy melody i mean for for Mm -hmm. those of you who are confused um luke's theme is actually the main theme of star wars and i think especially considering there are quite a few star wars films that don't actually involve luke and that melody has stayed around at least in the opening credits it's probably Mm -hmm. the the broader star wars theme but certainly in the original films it's it's luke um uh and certainly that's the thing that you know, um, Williams is really known for. And in this queue, we get a, you know, probably the boldest and most terrifying rendition of the Imperial March being Vader's theme, uh, across this film. But I think that that's only one part of what makes Williams a great film composer and so, uh, effective. I actually think that one of his great gifts is, um, a sympathy for the audience in that I think he's Hmm. always writing and composing and thinking with what does the audience need musically here? Uh, And, you know, that's, that's what all film composers, what all screen composers I think should, should be doing. But I think he has a gift for it. I think he has a very high kind of emotional um, um, sympathy uh, and, and, uh, you know, kind of understanding of the audience and, and what, what you might need. Um, and sometimes he's accused, um, of going overboard, perhaps, you know, being a bit, a little bit syrupy or sugary with, uh, emotional writing in particular. And sure, there's certainly some scores that I can think of where I agree with that. Like, um, the terminal, even for example, as a, as a mm. Spielberg film. But I think that by and large, actually he gets it tremendously right. Um, and I think that actually a lot of Empire is about that. But I think what makes this cue also one of my favourite things about the movie is because I would argue that so much of this movie is um, defined by two kind of musical ideas it, or, or, or kind of almost schemas um, in a way. It's mm. hard to call it like a, a theme or anything like that because all those words have been taken to mean other things in film music. Um, <laughs> yeah. 
you know, if you if you think about the visual design of of Star Wars, the rebels are, um, you know, uh, odd geometric shapes. You know, the mm-hmm. the Millennium Falcon's a weird hamburger with triangles. You know, like <laughs> uh, the re- uh-huh. there's all these kind of oddly shaped X wings, A wings. The X wings have a big, long, pointy nose and weird little hummingbird wings. Yeah, that's right. Whereas the Imperials are squares and symmetry. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think across empire, cause it's essentially a, a chase movie. Right. And we get these kind of parallel yeah. stories told, um, across the course of the movie. Um, and I think that so much of John Williams's music in this film is a kind of, um, what I've tried badly, I think to describe as meanwhile music in that a lot of, hmm. a lot of film storytelling actually is often, Meanwhile, right? Like you've told this story. Now, meanwhile, here's what's happening over here. And that's no more true <laughs> mm-hmm. than in a chase movie. <laughs> um, right. Because you're cutting between the, the chase and the chasey. <laughs> nice. So those two musical modes, yeah, it is hard to come up with a word. Yeah. That isn't a musical term. Those two musical colors are, how would you define them? Like, how would you describe them? So I think um, we can see another really great example of this in, um, in uh, the Battle of Hoth. Where you get um, uh, basically music for the rebels that is chaos, that is all these really kind of uh, undulating, uncertain anxious rhythms and then it'll mm-hmm. cut to the Imperials where it's like certainty and precision. Um, right. And, and certainly in the Battle of Hoth, you get a lot of that. I, I mean, I almost can't find a place to stop it because it's just, it's <laughs> so chaos and such a brilliant cue as well but mm-hmm. you know the the rebels are these kind of like dun 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 da 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 dun 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 mm-hmm. they're kind of running around frantically right they're trying to staff these trenches they're trying to move through the space and evacuate they're yeah. they're a little bit unglued yeah yeah for sure and the imperials on the other hand although you know there's this kind of bed of chaos underneath it to emphasize how the scene is is chaotic mm-hmm. the imperials have these really kind of you know steady bomb 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 mm-hmm. or or throughout the the film you often get this kind of prelude to the imperial march which is a like a dum dum mm-hmm. dum dum um, that that is almost kind of like it. it um, I think in the art of the score episode, I described it as like a Darth Vader proximity alarm. It's like <laughs> it's like <laughs> it is. It, though, yeah, he, he's about to turn up. Um, and I think <laughs> you know, I've I've often thought I, I should really just put my money where my mouth is and actually pitch this. But I would love to write like a thirty three and a third style book on on the soundtrack one day. Um, and my argument would be that what makes this score great is that it's essentially these two ideas with one chasing the other and the Imperials almost trying the Imperials music trying to impose stillness on the rebels music. The rebels music Mm. is chaos and all over the place and wild feels almost improvised at times. The Imperials music is order and, 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 and a kind of a a deathly stillness. Um, Wow. And That's a great read. I love that. You should write that book. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Maybe one day. I'd really like to. But, 
Um, and so anyway, in the, the original cue that you play, the Clash of Lightsabers, I think that's where you get that chaos of the moment with those strings and Luke kind of almost realizing he's kind of outclassed here with the Imperial March over the top, this dum, 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 ba dum. It's this very kind of clarion, um, you know, melody that, that's, that's like, okay, now I have stopped you, you know. So uh, I don't know how long that was, but that's my briefest possible summary. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. Where does Yoda's theme fit into this? Because Yoda and the Force, that piece, when Yoda lifts the X-Wing out of the bog, is another Uh, one of my favorite Williams pieces ever. A very different kind of piece of music, I guess, at least to me, than this sort of juxtaposition of these two different um, emotions that you're talking about, it's kind of just the moment of grace mm. where Yoda just reconnects with the force and does something incredible. And it's so beautiful. That music is, that's another piece of music that I just completely opens up to me when I, um, when I sit and listen to it outside of the scene, I can feel the scene happening, mm. but there's so much more there musically. I'll put it on just so we can, so we can hear just the part that I love so much. Yes, (laughs) so good. What a moment. It's kind of the, I mean, it's a film full of darkness, right? Yeah. It's, a, um, it's the darkest of probably all of the, the Star Wars films. And it's this moment of just triumph and grace and beauty. It kind of is the moment that tells me as a viewer that everything is going to be okay in the end. Maybe that's what you're talking about with John Williams knowing what I need yeah. as a viewer. That in that moment in this film, this otherwise very tense, dark film, mm. I just need a moment where I know that the good guys are going to win. Yeah. <laughs> and that's kind of what that does. So it's kind of the exception that proves the rule almost, yeah. at least to me. I don't know. What do you think of, of that and of Yoda's theme in general? No, I definitely, I definitely agree. And I think Yoda's theme, uh, you know, I mean, it sits outside of the chase narrative as well because Luke is not really yeah. being chased while he's being on Dagobah. Right, that's all. Yeah. Meanwhile, on Dagobah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And, you know, actually, weirdly, what I love most about that cue is right before it gets into the okay, now Yoda is lifting mm-hmm. the X-wing. There's this just absolutely effortless key change. And I, I just, I'm always. At a loss to, I mean, I feel like, you know, as I said before, like the, the kind of, I, I, you know, I'm a high school trained musician, right? And I, <laughs> I kind of feel like the more music that I create professionally, the more I kind of realize actually the only thing that is really important technically, you know, technical knowledge about 
music is when to change key, when to modulate key, when and how. It's like <laughs> one of the most underappreciated skills yeah. uh, for a songwriter or a composer. That's absolutely true. And and that little key change where he's kind of fiddling around with a lighter, half-hearted version of Yoda's theme at the start of that section that you just played. And then it does a little half step and suddenly we're in a different key, which feels so much more assured. And it's like, mm. I think those little things that as a listener, you you may never think about that consciously, but there is a little subconscious, you know, there's something, there's that 10% there where it's like, you go from feeling uncertain what's going to happen next to, ah, oh, he's going to do it. You know, I'm feeling this great moment of victory in, as you mm-hmm. said, and otherwise uh, a, a film without very many victories. I mean, even the battle of Hoth at the start, they only win because they didn't lose. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> it's a successful retreat. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and it's just, yeah, it's, it's a wonderful, wonderful example of, of using the, the kind of formal style and, 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 and language of not just film music, but the orchestra to, to give you that emotional grounding um, in the audience. I, you know, I think it's such a good illustration, even though it goes to such beautiful places, it's almost made by that, that little turn. Um, That's right where that little bird call begins in the in the woodwinds. He's really good at um, a thing that I love that he does is he will add little sprinklings to the string section. Um, sometimes it's a piccolo, sometimes it's a harp, sometimes it's a mallet percussion instrument. He's very good at taking the strings as this kind of monolithic, stretchy sound, and then just adding a little a little fairy dust on top. Um, something orchestrationally that I've always loved about his music. Well, I, I think as well one of the other things that I often think about John Williams is that really he is he represents, <clears throat> sadly, I think the end of a era, you know, I mean, when he's no longer making film music, um, which I hope is in another hundred years time, but um, <laughs> uh, because not only does he have that sensibility and style and is, is called for still these days to make that certain kind of movie, but he has the experience and training in a way that I don't even know how you would begin to, to yeah. train a composer up with that. He, <laughs> John Williams wrote for TV. I think this is a really crucial part of his story um, for about five six years, perhaps even longer, very early in his career before he was, you know, anywhere near John Williams in capital letters. Um, And the thing about that was that they had an orchestra, you know, in the soundstage recording, you know, music most days of the week because they needed to churn out film scores, film music, especially for the more expensive shows. You didn't use uh, stock music or canned music from from a record or a library or whatever. Uh, you had to write and record music. So John Williams talks about being able to go down to the recording stage, conducting his music or hearing what they were doing and sort of, you know, walking around to the double basses and go, that that G, would that be better as a G natural, like for you to play, you know? Like is that what what feels good for you, you know? Like mm-hmm. um, and there's only so much training that you can get, I think, even at a brilliant uh, orchestration degree or something like that, right? Where you understand the technical 
requirements of orchestrating for an orchestra, but to spend day to day that time with the musicians and go, Hey, what do you like to play? What, Mm -hmm. what feels good? Like that is, uh, I don't know where another composer is going to come from who has that kind of knowledge Especially now, because I can't go ask my string sample bank yeah. where they like to play a G. Yeah. You know? And so many people do learn. I mean, there's so much more as possible in some ways yeah. because of what technology allows. Mm. You can write pretty convincing sounding film scores, you know, with free software that just yeah. comes with your laptop. Yeah. But it is going to be different because you're not writing for human beings. And yeah, there is just nowhere you can get that kind of experience yeah. because there's no one making music in that way anymore because they don't have to, because your computer can do it for, for so much more uh, inexpensively. Precisely. Yeah. I, I mean, you know, I, I've still spoken to string players uh, recently who not only say they can tell when a score has been written for virtual instruments because there are all sorts of really strange and unusual, um, uh, like especially fast runs that are really hard to play on a violin, not because the violinists can't play fast, but because um, ergonomically the run doesn't sit right with the hand. It's just a very strange thing to do, um, but it mm-hmm. sounds great on a, on a, on a software instrument. Right. Um, but not only can they tell that, but um, I've heard, um, musicians say, especially string musicians, that you can tell whether the composer is a string player themselves or whether they're a pianist. Oh, for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, because you write chords, um, you know, on piano in a way that you wouldn't if you had to literally bow uh, and, and mm-hmm. finger them. It's um, I've certainly found that as a saxophonist. It's, it can be the same thing where I read mm-hmm. parts where I'm like, this was what is going on here. <laughs> yeah. Just like palm key runs and stuff that does, just does not make sense. Yeah. Where when you read, you know, an Ellington chart or something, everything was written with these specific saxophone players in mind. Yep. He knew exactly how to write for, for each player in his band and it shows. Yeah. And then it shows in the performance too. It does come out. Yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, I think it's, is it Brian Eno that talks about the history of music being shaped by technology and essentially the the venue and the recording, eventually recording style that it was written for, you know, writing. Sounds like something he would say. Yeah. <laughs> writing certain kinds of like liturgical music for, for churches and um, right. basilicas where the echo is incredible. And obviously the, 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 the most, you know, you can't really, what would, drum and bass sound like in that kind of scenario like kind of horrible right, right. you can't have too much percussion in a room like that yeah but you know you, you can have you know really heavy 808s that sound great on a car stereo right and it's made for that big boomy bass mm-hmm. um and so i think you know although in a way i'm kind of old man shaking fist at cloud about john williams representing this sure. brilliant era at the same time it's kind of like well people people just work with different technology and kind of the affordances of that technology shape different scores i mean we could have a whole nother conversation about i was talking about before the live performance of film music it's kind of always a bit of a funny gig when you have a, a Hans Zimmer type score, which I've also been involved in because you, mm-hmm. th- that kind of music is not just, even though it sounds in the film, it sounds like a symphony orchestra. It's actually not yeah. really written for symphony orchestra. It's written for a production suite on a computer to, mm-hmm. to play. And so when you play that live, if you play it acoustically with just the instruments in the hall, making those sounds, it sounds kind of not good. Um, so you, right. you have to, you need the person with the laptop yeah. triggering samples and, you know, basically playing the score from the film along with the orchestra to make it sound the way that it sounds in the film. Yeah. Or, or even just, you know, um, amplifying the, the orchestra and, 
you know, adding mm. adding in uh, the the bass and the the strings, you know, mm-hmm. ramping it all up mm-hmm. a little. So yeah, it's a, it's a different different set of tech, I guess. Mm. One thing about Empire Strikes Back that I think is noteworthy is that it is a much more complex film than the original. Mm. Um, obviously, you know, it's a noteworthy score because it was the, you know, it was the second one. Mm. And now we think of it in terms of a trilogy because, you know, when I watched Empire Strikes Back, Return of the Jedi already existed. Mm. So I never lived in a world where it was the first second Star Wars movie, if yeah. that makes any sense. Yeah. It was the first time that someone had said, oh, there's actually going to be a lot of these. This could be a whole thing. It's not a one-off, and we're, we're doing multiple films. And as a result, as a composer, Williams is taking all of these motifs that he introduced in the first film and developing them, and there's just a much more mature approach to the uh, motifs and I don't mean that in like it was immature in the first film and now Mm. he's grown up but just it is matured because more time has passed he's already used these motifs and introduced them so he can now build on them he can intersperse them you know I think the you guys pointed this out in Art of the Score that the first instance of the Imperial March is a piccolo playing like floating above the orchestra at the very beginning As I sat down to listen to the score, I, uh, it was before I'd listened to your episode, and I had to laugh, noticing the same thing. Oh, there it is. Yeah. Um, and so he is—he has a lot more to work with because he's already established these motifs. But also, the film itself is just a more complex film. Mm. It's this dark film. It has a lot more shades of gray. It has characters that aren't quite so clear cut. It evolves the characters in interesting way, ways. Of course, it introduces the fact that Vader himself is a more complicated character than we realized. I guess my question for you is, do you think that that, the fact that the film itself is more thematically complex, plays in to the fact that Williams's score is also uh, kind of richer and more complex overall than in the first film? Absolutely. And I, yeah, I'm so glad that you mentioned all of that because I think that, um, yeah, it's very easy, especially, uh, you know, for, for those of us who, who arrived on planet earth with the original Star Wars trilogy having, having concluded, like it's very easy to just kind of see that as, um, inevitable and, Empire, I think this is again one of the reasons why not only it's a, a key film but a key soundtrack is that Empire is actually the one that solidifies Star Wars into a franchise. You know, right. you actually just had a successful singular blockbuster, which <clears throat> could have been like Jaws, for example, which has has sequels, mm-hmm. none of which are considered anywhere near on par as the original. Right, not quite so much world building in Jaws. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> or like, uh, you know, I, I mean, as well, like Star Wars really establishes the franchise as we knew it for the fir- for the for 30 years. And it, the franchise world has changed a little over the last 10 with the MCU. But largely, you know, Star Wars, I think, is the, the granddaddy of the, the franchise um, in, mm-hmm. in Hollywood. Previous to this, you had some sequels, like um, there was more American Graffiti. Um, there was The Godfather mm-hmm. 2, which is, you know, of course. almost certainly the, 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 the best received sequel up until Empire and possibly even um, still today. But really, uh, in the golden age of Hollywood, sequels weren't a thing. 
um, when Casablanca was enormously successful. Uh, a year later, I think they made a film called uh, Passage to Marseille, which stars Humphrey Bogart as a kind of lovable right. scam. Spiritual successor, yeah. as we would call it in the video game world. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, where it kind of feels mm-hmm. like a sequel uh, and has a lot of the same creative people involved, but is not is not a sequel. It's yeah. essentially kind of a, a remake of the same themes. Um, uh, and... Uh, you know, Passage to Marseille is, is not, does not quite have the same re- uh, name recognition as Casablanca, let's just say that. Um, but <laughs> no, for some reason. Yeah. <laughs> so it's Empire that makes the decision. Yes, all Star Wars films open with the opening fanfare and a long time right. ago in a galaxy far, far away and the opening crawl. All Star Wars films sound like this because it's not impossible to imagine a world where George Lucas, you know, goes, actually, I don't want to make this film Fox, you you take over. And some executive at Fox mm-hmm. is like, well, the first film was great, but what Star Wars really needs is like a, like a, a pop song soundtrack, you know, like. Right. Since we had like the Christmas special in between these films, right. It is there. It's possible to even see a dark glimpse of what that world would have looked like. Yeah. Uh, and not to mention, I think it's the, the actual Flash Gordon movie that comes out around this time too. Mm-hmm. So George Lucas wanted to make Flash Gordon, couldn't get the rights and then Star Wars. So they could have gotten Queen yeah. to do the soundtrack. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Empire. Maybe that would have been great. Yeah. <laughs> but but it, it, absolutely. So there are, you know, so many different models for how this could have turned out. But George Lucas um, did take full creative control, um, except for direction, really, and script writing. But script writing, he still had quite a bit of input in on. Um, but mm-hmm. direction, he hired um, Irvin Kirshner, who was um, a sort of mentor figure of sorts. He judged a film competition that Lucas, a young Lucas, had entered uh, the student film THX one one three eight into, mm-hmm. um, uh, and I think Lucas felt like perhaps Kirsch was going to um, uh, defer more to him than he did. Um, <laughs> he ended up being frustrated that. Uh, he w- refused to shoot uh, a, what's called a master take of a scene. So like a single shot that takes in all of the actors in a scene that you can therefore cut between so you can speed up or slow down the scene um, mm-hmm. in, in the edit. Um, but right. but Kirsch didn't do that. It was all the, the camera framings that he wanted, um, which is why the film looks so beautiful and, and artistic because um, it had a kind of on-set um, vision. Um but aside from that, you know, like it's it's the film that that means that we get the other um, seven saga films. Is it Am my math right? Yeah, yeah, seven saga films. Um, that, that know, there's so many. Yes, yes, the that, other seven <laughs> that look and sound like Star Wars um, mm-hmm. because Empire was was the confirmation that yes, a Star Wars film begins like this. Yes, they all have kind of this tone, or there's a there's a there's a there's a um, you know like a like a a circle of tone that mm-hmm. that's that a Star Wars film will fall into a range. That's the word I was looking for. Yeah. 
yeah, so so but I yeah, I, I agree though. I mean I think it's still thematically probably the most complicated and, and darkest of, of the saga films. Um, you know, I, I think it's it's certainly got the best script. Um, uh, yeah. Lawrence Kasdan did a did an amazing job adding that kind of spark and wit um, mm-hmm. to a lot of the dialogue, the kind of sarcastic uh, world weariness that that drives a lot of um, the original trilogy anyway, and that, that perhaps the prequels sorely missed. Um, and, and I think that does come through in the music. I mean, it, John Williams has written great music for terrible films. Um, not that I really think Phantom Menace is terrible, but I do think it, is, it has a great soundtrack that is far better than the film. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but I do think that, you know, like everyone, he, he excels when he's writing for really high quality material. You know, another movie that makes me think of is another of his scores that I know you love, Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban, yeah. which is a movie that I rewatched recently. I've always been fond of it. Um, this is Alfonso Cuaron's yeah. um, brilliant, frankly, brilliant mm. Harry Potter film that mm. maybe just as a work of filmmaking surpasses anything else that has ever been a part of the Harry Potter universe. Yeah. Yeah. And um, whenever I go back to it, I'm struck by uh, how well... Um, Williams' score intersects with Quaron's directorial style. Yeah. I know you guys have done, you've talked about this at length on your own podcast, but just to mention it here, I think that also as a story mm. in the Harry Potter, whatever, septology, it is the most, It's it introduces a lot more complexity, introduces a lot more darkness. It's also like a story that takes what was a fairly straightforward kind of hero's adventure and turns it into something more complex with a world that starts to make a more... Uh, kind of richer moral sense Mm. in a way that I think Empire does as well and both of those scores work beautifully in that kind of film like he works well in that mode I guess Yeah, I mean, I think yeah, it's such a good example, and and one thing that I'm I'm frankly fascinated by, which is how you know hollywood is is a kind of two to three star film machine right like and that is hmm. that is how it functions it has got all the checks and balances that usually it's not going to turn out something completely unwatchable but those same checks and balances of producers running their eye over every script and giving notes and feedback and asking for endless rewrites and, you know, looking at all the edits and committees, you know, kind of reviewing these things so that a film doesn't lose money, right? Um, Right. They're risk-averse companies. How do they, like, what happens to make something that's four or five stars come out of that franchise Mm. universe. And you get it with Mm -hmm. Empire, you get it with Prisoner of Azkaban, you get it with a few other limited examples. And I just think that is so interesting and so fascinating when that happens. But you're right that Williams's score for Azkaban, it's, uh, I mean, you know, like he's already written, but it's the third film. He's already written the famous Hedwig's Celeste theme, right? He could have just gone, okay, we'll, we'll more or less put that on repeat for, you know, two hours and, mm-hmm. you know, dust my hands, walk away, job done, right? <laughs> the kids will love it, it'll be fine. Yeah, like there are plenty yeah. of composers who would have done that. But instead in Azkaban, we get this kind of unhinged bebop big band Absolutely jazz. wild, Yeah. <laughs>
we get a, a choir singing um, beautiful choir. A, yeah, a choir that sounds unlike anything I've ever heard from him. I guess yeah. I haven't heard all of his scores, but there, uh, yeah, there are some choral pieces in that in that score that are just unlike anything of his that I've heard. Yeah, absolutely. You get, you know, the use of like a stopwatch or something that sounds like it as a percussive mm-hmm. device. You know, this huge percussion. I mean, I actually, I, as well, like I, another thing that I love to talk about, that people love to talk about and point out with John Williams is his percussion writing. I mean, his dad was a percussionist. Yeah. Um, it shows. He's got a real, I mean, he has a real jazz sensibility, as you mentioned. He's mm. a, He brings a level of rhythm to his compositions that definitely does not sound like something that you would have heard in a symphony hall, mm. you know, in the, in the middle of the 20th century. Yeah. I mean, I think going back to Empire, I think Empire is is probably actually one of the great percussion soundtracks and certainly mm-hmm. one of the great timpani soundtracks. I think... Yeah, timpani has a whole a whole identity in that score. Yeah. I mean, even, uh, even the famous uh, No, I Am Your Father moment. <laughs> oh, man. And just, just that little roll, um, mm-hmm. that's... So he says, no, I am your father. And as he says, Mm -hmm. father, that's the brum on the timpani under there. No, I am your father. No, no, it's not true. Which is so beautifully understated for this moment where, you know, the whole film kind of in pop culture certainly turns on this moment. And mm-hmm. he, you know, rather than sort of like, it, it, it could be, but it's not a like, dun, dun, dun. <laughs> like it, <laughs> right, right. Um, it's, it's, it's not a big underline. It's just a little like, you know, uh, I think Andrew on Out of the School described it as a shiver. It, it's like a, something mm-hmm. running up your spine. Um, a gasp, maybe? It feels a little like a gasp. Yeah. To me. Like an inhalation. Mm. And I think, you know, so much of Empire, I mean, the, there are other moments in um, the Battle of Hoth earlier, which are just, uh, the percussion must be having so much fun. Let, let me see if I can quickly <laughs> find. Um... Uh, and just <laughs> like the snare drum and cymbals, just, mm-hmm. yeah. Piano at its most percussive as well, just matching up with everybody. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. The, the piano in, in that whole cue is, is incredible. Actually, I think there's two pianos in that cue. Um, oh, nice. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, it's an it's an incredible, uh, an incredibly rhythmic score in general. And another thing I noticed also, like divorced from the rhythm of the editing and the rhythm of the sound effects and the action on screen, which have their own rhythm is a sort of three-part rhythm mm. overlay happening mm. when you remove those and you just listen to it and can really just center in on the rhythm of the score itself it is i think it's a remarkable thing 
That is, yeah, it's such a good point. And this is something that I think about. I mean, I, I, I run a whole uh, uni subject these days on film music. Um, I try not to make it just John Williams 101. I wish I could do that. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, I mean, film film is rhythmic uh, in its own right. Very much so. But it is mm-hmm. particularly rhythmic with the addition of sound. And this is, this mm-hmm. is something that I think... Um, a lot of people forget is that in the silent era, actually films used to have approximate run times because you couldn't guarantee how fast a projector would play the film at, right? <laughs> like it, it, um, they might get it slightly wrong. They might do it slightly fast. Um, but, but it doesn't really matter without a soundtrack that's linked to the film because, you know, like if you play it just like just a tiny bit fast, you're not going to notice. Um, but with, sound and with music you are absolutely going to notice if something is sped up <laughs> and so it's it's sound that gives film its rhythm but i think it's music that gives um a sense of rhythm to an entire film like you know when a mm. film is coming to an end because there might be a moment where the film kind of takes a breath and we get a, a longer shot and the music kind of swells and we're like, oh, okay, the conclusion is coming here. Ah, uh, right? here we go. Mm-hmm. And so That's true. I, I sometimes run workshops, um, not for composers, but for bands who there's a, a great project here in Melbourne where a, a band will be picked and added to a film to write an original soundtrack um, to to that film. Um, uh, there's a band called King Gizzard and the Wizard Lizard. Um, they did. Oh, um, yes, yes. So, Very popular among Strong Songs listeners and among me as well. Yeah. I'm a huge fan of that band. So they, they did a soundtrack to um, <clears throat> Daria, Daria Argento's Suspiria. Uh, and I, I ran Of a, course they did. Yeah. Because they did that in the middle of releasing seven other albums. Yeah, that, yeah exactly. That month. <laughs> I, I don't think that album is released. I think it was recorded. I don't know if it's, uh, there's probably all sorts of rights issues around sure, releasing sure. that. But I did a um, a workshop, and I do do workshops sometimes for these bands when they're they're presented with these projects. It's Hear my eyes is the the larger project, which is actually run by a former nice. student of mine. Um, that sounds super cool. And uh, one of the things that I talk about is is how you know, like when you're approaching a uh, you know spotting a film, which is when you see watch a movie and decide where the music should be. Um, mm-hmm. Just how much that dictates how the audience sees the structure of the film. Um, Interesting. No, that makes sense. Yeah. And, you know, I think, you know, yeah, obviously John Williams is excellent at that. Um, but I think most film composers actually really, that has to be a, a tool in their, their, their bag because yeah, if you accidentally make the audience think that the film is coming to an end halfway through because of the music, uh, yeah, that's that's an issue. <laughs> I can't think off the top of my head of examples of that, but I've certainly had that happen. Mm. And a lot of times I think, you might not know why, but it probably is the score that's telling you, oh, the scene is coming to an end and then it doesn't. Yeah. Or the movie is ending and then, oh, surprise, it's not ending. Mm. Um, and you get that kind of faked out feeling that can, yeah, that can be a little bit unpleasant or at least discombobulating. Mm. Um, so, all right. So John Williams establishes with Empire Strikes Back this this sort of musical world and the fact that this series is now a series. It's going to become a whole thing. He then goes on to burnish that over the course of the next, I guess, 50, 20 years. And um, now at, at this point, maybe after the prequels have come out, that's when Clone Wars is starting to air. 
all the Star Wars video games, the sort of great video games of the 90s, the 2000s have come out. It starts to feel, at least to me, when I look back at it, as though everybody got the memo after Empire <laughs> that, oh, okay, this is what a Star Wars mm. property sounds like, and then followed that blueprint almost to a fault, mm. to the point where every Star Wars thing sounds the same. And that's not a it sounds like that's less of a good thing that you would say, oh, cool, that has a strong identity mm. and more of a of a criticism. Oh, mm. every Star Wars movie kind of sounds the same. Mm. And I at least started to notice that at some point mm. um, after the prequels, during the kind of all the different TV shows. I'm wondering what you think about that, about the way that this became so iconic that it's now gone all the way around to just almost feeling like a prison for composers <laughs> who come in. You know, you've got to do solo and, oh, nope, you've got to like... Work with these same themes. You've got to make it sound the same thing. Same kind of string runs. Same spices added to the orchestra. Well, I yeah. Look, I think I think there are a few ways to take that. I think I definitely felt that around Rogue One, uh, which I've actually come around to. When I first heard that score in the theater, there's a couple of cues where I was like, "Oh man, that's so close to the Star Wars main theme," but not. Uh, it kind of feels mm-hmm. like you're doing the, you know, the public domain version of it, you know, like, <laughs> um, like I think actually I can even bring up um, the... Oh. <laughs> oh, man, yeah. I talked about that cue on my um, on my episode about Andor. That, right. I found that very deflating in the yeah. theater yeah. when I heard it. Um, so that's uh, Michael Giacchino's score for this, which... The story goes, I think he was brought in yeah. because Alexander Desplat was going to be composing yeah. the score. And then for whatever reason, they decided to change it. And you do, I have no idea what happened. Um, of course, Giacchino, a, like a very skilled composer who's done a million movies, knows his stuff. Mm. But you, one gets the sense that he was brought in at the last minute and they were like, I don't know, just make it sound like Star Wars. Yeah. And he's like, all right, you want Star Wars? I can give you Star Wars. Yeah. And then he wrote um, cues like that. And, and I, I, I do feel sorry for him because, uh, you know, I'm, I, I know the kind of composer he is and the kind of music that he likes. That would have been a dream gig, right? Like, And in fairness, there are some cues that he writes later in the film that are wonderful, yeah. that are very interesting and kind of sound more classically him and a yeah. little bit less uh, like Williams. That's right. Yeah. And I, I do think that given the circumstances, is, um, the, the score yeah. is actually pretty good, but yeah, in the theater, I was like, why would you do that? Um, it just kind of feels, yeah, it feels like we're watching B tier Star Wars. Yeah, for me, it's really that was kind of the nadir, I guess. It mm. was the moment where I really realized I am tired of this sound, mm. like, I don't think Star Wars needs to sound this way, and that was something that I think was really driven home for me by Andor. Mm. Of course, Tony Gilroy, who wrote Rogue One and kind of like got Rogue One across the finish line in a lot of ways, like Rogue One was his project, but it was such a kind of Frankenstein operation. Let's pull this thing together, dealing with the studio, trying to salvage a film out of something that I think had kind of just fallen apart at multiple points. And he had the music to work with that he had. When he brings in Nicholas Bratel, a really different kind of composer for Andor, to do something dramatically different, for me anyways, probably not the first Star Wars thing, you know, story, game, whatever, to feature music that was so dramatically different. But for me, at least, the most successful example of that and something that just it really just threw away John Williams' approach and did something totally different and I think worked really well.
Yeah, I I, I completely agree with that. To the point where actually, you know, like I'm going to be a little controversial here and say that I'm not oh. that big a fan of The Mandalorian's music world um despite mm. you know i loved goranson's creed music i loved his black panther yeah. score his collaborations on that score as well um and the main theme to the mandalorian i think works obviously it's yes. it's it's probably the most famous non-john williams star wars music at this point Definitely the most famous bass recorder <laughs> anywhere. <laughs> yeah. I'm not sure there's a lot of competition for that. Manzo, no, but, that's true. That's um, true. An easy bar to clear. Yeah. <laughs> but, but I actually think that where it fails is, uh, you know, the kind of B section of that theme, um, the main theme, and, and a lot of the underscore writing for that show, actually, um, where it, it tries to give a concession mm. to, I know to the I know Star Wars world. About. Um, yeah. And I saw I saw an interview with Goranson afterwards where he was sort of like, and we still wanted to throw in kind of a, a nod to John Williams mm-hmm. and the Star Wars universe. And I was like, it just, it's just, it's not good enough. Like it, it's just very kind of simplistic. And actually, I think that he's still kind of working in that Bill Conti mode where he was, I think, much more successfully paying homage to Bill Conti's sound for Rocky for Creed. To me, mm. to me, that sounds like someone's photocopied Star Wars too many times, you know, it, 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 it doesn't really work. And I think that actually, I don't know. I, I just don't know that they nailed that. Um, you know, to, to continue to kind of connect the music with the subject matter of the thing that the music is accompanying. Mm. I think that's also an issue that the Mandalorian has as a show and not an issue that Andor had where Andor as a show was very willing to be its own thing. Mm. And really just at no point did that show feel the need to bring in some star Wars stuff. You know, Mm. many people have said this, but no one ever has a bad feeling about anything on it. (laughs) It is just its own show. And the music Bertel was just like, I'm doing my own thing. Yeah. I don't feel the need to like pay homage to, you know, to Williams. If anything, he sounds like Zimmer at times. It's like it goes for an almost more Zimmery, mm. you know, massiveness at, at points. Mm. But The Mandalorian, plot wise, the thing that bums me about out about that show, especially past season one, is the more Star Wars it becomes, the yep. more they're bringing in the Force, the more you know yep. CGI young Luke is turning up the more they lose me where when mm. it was just a weird Western monster of the week kind of show yep. with this weird guy in a mask, like I was into that. And that is more that sort of Morricone, you know, Western mm. bass recorder, just sort of dark driving thing that sounds nothing like John Williams at all. Yeah, pr- precisely. I couldn't agree more. I, th- I think, yeah, that Morricone Western thing, that's where it's really successful. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, I, um, it's a, a whole nother podcast, but yeah, I just, I could <laughs> not dislike what they did with Luke uh, more, uh, I think. Yeah, yeah. all right. So uh, listeners, tune in later yeah. for, for me and Dan's <laughs> criticism of Disney plus Star Wars shows. <laughs> but, but going back we'll to your, another three hours. Yeah. But going back to your earlier point, though, I do. I do think that actually John Powell's solo is is one of the scores that walks that line really well. I think that it it 
It is actually a tremendous soundtrack. I mean, I'm a massive fan of John Powell in general. I think that he mm-hmm. does write that kind of orchestral thing with a modern twist pretty successfully. And, you know, that score is full of overt nods at times, but also these tiny little... Um, Tiny little Easter eggs uh, for the one one that you guys pointed out on your show that I had not noticed that cracked me up is the major key version of the Imperial yeah. March. This uses a <laughs> recruitment video, yeah, because that is what the Imperial March would sound like if you played it with major chords. It would be this like, "Come join the Empire." Yeah. You know? <laughs> But, but, you know, it's actually, it is, it is a very, very cleverly done um, uh, mm. little bit. Like it's, it's, it's not just let's chuck it in, in a, in a major key. Like <laughs> it almost sounds like Starship Troopers or something. Yeah. Would you like to know more? But here, right? Like, it sounds like a joke. It is a joke. It is but, on some levels. But 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 the execution is is to such a high level where, like, that little turn where the trumpet comes in over the top of the strings. It's mm-hmm. just so Elgar, like which is exactly the kind of you know pomp and circumstance thing that they are mm-hmm. they are turning this into, right? They haven't just gone. Uh, it'll be funny to to whack it in a major key, and then it then it becomes mm-hmm. this. It's like they've really you know John Powell has really thought about how would this work as a march? You know how what is the most Elgarian? Um, I think I assume that's the word Elgarian setting of this in the <laughs> orchestra, where again mm-hmm. we we actually think about the notes that they're playing. And I think there's a lot of that. Um, I mean, there's all these other little silly moments in the film as well, where like, um, this is a total train spotting moment. So that dum, ba-da-da-dum, ba-da-da-dum, bum, ba-da-da-dum, ba-da-da-dum, uh, Believe it or not, uh, that is the only reoccurrence of the droids motif from Empire Strikes Back in any Star Wars (laughs) film. So... um he did some deep listening before he wrote his score for Solo. Absolutely. So, like in Empire Strikes Back, there's a little melody that's da 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 I don't know. Like, I, 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 I don't know how many more Star Wars schools will get like that, but it's like you're listening to a Star Wars fan who's actually had time and space to, to totally mm. commit to the bit, you know? <laughs> yeah, that makes... You're giving me a, be, a finer appreciation for that score and, again, making me wish that that film had been better because the first hour or so of it is not a bad movie at all. It's mm. pretty fun and then it kind of falls apart. <laughs> and then that I think that just can't help but affect my estimation of the score mm. because the movie itself just, I find, 
pretty flawed. Um, but yeah, I do love John Powell. I love his score for How to Train Your Dragon. So this yeah. this makes me want to go back and just listen to his solo score. Oh, it's great. And there's an extended uh, edition release, which is the only Disney Star Wars um, product to have every moment of music released. Uh, uh, and it's a, it's a beautifully mixed and mastered uh, release. It's a real real pleasure to listen to that one, actually. Man, I'll have to hope that's not the last time that that happens, even though they've, I guess the the films have really fallen off a cliff at this point. Yeah. Who knows what is going to happen next? No, I know. I But I, yeah, it is such a pity. I would really love to, so there are, there are extended edition releases of the original three. Uh, the Phantom Menace mm-hmm. got a full release, uh, which is a little awkward because the soundtrack, like most modern films, was edited and cut up. Uh, and so listening to that as a standalone listening experience is a little bit weird because you can hear literally where they've crossfaded between cues mm. and stuff like that. But nonetheless, mm-hmm. I appreciate that the music is out there. Um, and then Attack of the Clones, Revenge of the Sith have only got, um, you know, single single CD album releases, right, the, the right, highlights, right. And, and as do all the Disney films except for um, Solo. And, you know, like Rise of Skywalker, once again... Um, not to not to go into the quality of the movie, but the, there was a lot more music written for that film than is used in the film. Um, the soundtrack release that we have represents like I I don't know I would guess maybe forty percent of the music that you hear oh, in the wow. movie. So you know, Star Wars mega fans such as myself have had to scrounge through the internet for like um, you know for your consideration <laughs> album releases released to mm-hmm. Oscar voters and stuff like that um, just to try and get as much music as possible. Makes me want to go mm. track that down as well. I don't know if I could ever watch Rise of Skywalker again, but I'd listen to the score. That Those are definitely films, I think, especially that last one that would maybe benefit just just from being a, a film score without an attached film. Perhaps. Who needs a film? <laughs> so you can just have a lot of beautiful music and that'd be fine. Well, nice. We could talk about Star Wars forever. There are a few other things that we wanted to talk about. So we're going we're gonna to change topics now and... Uh, and talk about one album in particular that you mentioned just from your jazz background and one that you're uh, very interested in, made by an artist that I have not really talked about on Strong Songs, that being jazz bassist and uh, genius composer Charles Mingus mm. and his record Blues and Roots from 1959, though I believe it was released in 1960. <laughs> So we're listening to it right now. I'm sure something is playing underneath us right now. Um, why did you pick this record as, as one that you'd want to talk about on the show? This record, I think, more so than anything else, is the music where, you know, I think I, um, <laughs> I'm outing myself as a criminal on, on a podcast. find is and Australian authorities don't listen to this no show, exactly uh, back in the day you know uh, there was uh, I think we were maybe a step above burnt CD sharing but it was maybe like mm-hmm. a like a like a hard drive of music that someone had given me to check mm-hmm. out and I, I was just idly like I think I was doing it. 
busy work, something else, and was just listening to whatever had been on this. Mm-hmm. And it is the most crystal clear memory I have of just hearing something play and me going, <laughs> stop everything. Like, what is this? What is this? Was sound? this like Wednesday night prayer meeting? Like the first track yeah. on the record comes on and it's just this out of control blues waltz. And I just think like like there are so many things that that I was primed to to love about this, like the big band setting apart from anything, because you know, I think really that was the music that I grew up on. Mum um, in particular would just have like lots of Benny Goodman and, you know, mm-hmm. even Glenn Miller, but you know, like Artie Shaw, like all those big band leaders, Tommy Dorsey, just playing around the house. And, you know, that was, that was music that I kind of idly loved. Um, Duke Ellington, Cam Basie, et cetera. Um, and so, you know, obviously, uh, you know, this is, what is this like 20 years later, I suppose. Um, yeah, I guess so. Then some of that stuff. Yeah. And like, you know, 15, the ad- 20 years. Yeah. The advent of uh, uh, bebop has arrived, and I suppose by 1959 we're transitioning into other things entirely. But you know, like there's there's layers of of jazz history here in Charles Mingus. I think you know perhaps more so than a lot of other uh, people of his era is kind of like I think actively engaged in jazz music history. His albums really function that way, right? There's yeah. always, there are these, so many tributes to people from the past. Ah, um, we should mention Ah, um, here mm. and kind of contextualize this for listeners. There are these two Mingus records, Mingus Ah, um, and Blues and Roots, both of which were recorded with almost the same band. Yeah. Blues and Roots adds a couple of, I think Pepper Adams and uh, Jackie McLean are like the two saxophone players who are on that who aren't on Ah, um. Mm. But they're both, they're kind of like two halves of a double record almost, even though. Uh, um, I think gets a little bit more yeah. acclaim from historians. Blues and Roots, maybe a little less so, though Blues and Roots has Monin. Anyways, so these two records, same kind of group, and a lot of the tunes on both records, like you're saying, are um, are historical. They're about Jelly Roll. There's two Jelly Roll tunes. There's Duke's Sound of Love. There's the song about uh, My Pork Pie Hat. Yeah. The song about Lester Young, who died, or Goodbye Pork Pie Hat. Mm-hmm. So a lot of history, a lot of him sort of paying tribute to his elders and to people who came before him. So anyways, continue. <sighs> but I think more than more than just the setting of, you know, like and the kind of historical engagement with the music that I already loved, like just it was the revelation to me was, oh, so you can you can play jazz and you can yell and scream <laughs> as part of that. Like Yeah. Like this is this is I mean to me I think this is this has been one of my big inspirations ever since and I, I've really only had call to make music like this maybe once um, uh, uh, since this point is where it's like you you know to try and use the recording studio to capture something to capture life mm-hmm. not just notes and 
and a performance, but to capture the moment of people in a room, um, kind of, kind of just, just doing doing a cool thing really, really well. making something in the moment, like really capturing the moment, which means capturing the space, right? Mm. There are so many moments on this recording. I, man, I totally agree with you about this and had a similar reaction the first time that I heard it. That feeling of being in the room with people, like when you can hear Mingus just screaming, he has that scream. Yeah. He'll just start yelling at everybody pretty constantly yeah. just to kind of keep the energy going and to connect to everyone. It, I mean, Wednesday night prayer meeting, the first tune, feels like a prayer meeting at some you know rowdy church. Mm. And um, I remember hearing that energy as well as a, as a student and thinking, oh, like, so this is jazz. Yes. Like, this is what jazz is all about. <laughs> yeah. It's about this energy and about people together doing this thing. Which is wild because I think like the mythology behind the album is that he says that that the critics at the time were like, well, Mingus Mingus can do kind of arty jazz, but he can't really swing. Uh, wow. And <laughs> imagine saying that. I know, incomprehensible. And so he was like, oh, okay, yeah. well, I'll make I'll make an album that swings. <laughs> It's like, it's like okay, like unlike Ah um or whatever, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like his earlier records, which definitely swung <laughs> extremely hard. Yeah, and it's just, um, uh, yeah, it's just, it's so amazing to hear, just hear them yelling and and screaming, mm-hmm. and like you know, like I, I, I feel like actually in a in a weird way, like um, it's not like it's like a live album that they've just captured because you you can actually hear in a couple of the tracks that there are kind of like almost hard edits, right? Like that they've kind of yeah. combined. There's a couple of really clean cuts on uh, on um as well. Yeah. Just very like, you can tell they had a really good take of the head Yeah, because he does these things with his heads, right? Where they almost always layer on top of one another. Monin is a great example of this, where it begins with this Barry Sachs motif. <laughs> But then they add the trombones on top of it. Then Jackie comes in with that killer alto line. And then, like, by the time they're all really cooking, they move on to the solos. I can't remember which track it is, but you can definitely hear a couple of places on both records, actually, Mm. where they did that. And it was just totally great. It was just smoking. And then maybe they'd all fell apart or the solo just wasn't (laughs) as good. And they just are like, okay, we're keeping that and we're just going to cut it. But, right, they didn't have the uh, editing technology. And because it's such a loose recording, Mm. it's just hard to do an edit Mm. when you have, like, just mayhem going on in the studio and have it have the mayhem not just feel kind of cut short. everybody Kirk here as I'm editing the episode I just wanted to note that the edit that I was thinking of was actually from a slightly later Mingus record it's from 1963's Mingus 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 that's five Minguses from the famous track 2BS which is actually one of my favorite Mingus tunes and possibly the tune that I'll talk about on the show when I do decide to do an episode about Charles Mingus anyways the edit in question is right here
<laughs> so, you know, pretty noticeable edit, but uh, not really a big deal. It's a great solo and a great recording in general. Okay, anyways, back to my conversation with Dan. Yeah, it's hard to describe. It just sounds like using the technology of the recording studio to double down on that sense of wild um, in the momentness, which sounds almost mm-hmm. like a like a contradiction, right? You're using kind of uh, stale, static, cold technology mm. to make something really warm and human. But like, I just think that's that's amazing. And I think the end result is amazing. And I wouldn't want it to be just so happens to be a live recording. I mean, Duke Ellington kind of did that in a way in that, you know, his Ellington, um, Newport, um, recording Mm -hmm. where, you know, the, 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 the official jazz story, pardon me, is that that's the kind of moment that his career got revived. He played this amazing set at Newport uh, Jazz Festival and, um, you know, some woman got up on stage and started dancing and uh, there was the saxophonist who did like, I don't know how many rounds of solo, like, you know, but like (laughs) Mm -hmm. the album that's released was like reconstructed like a week later, right? Like in the studio and the audience Mm -hmm. sounds are kind of added in like, um, and that's fine. <laughs> it's a great right, album. It's fine. Like, <laughs> yeah. Um, but but it's kind of pretending to be something else. Um, mm-hmm. It's 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 yeah. It's trying to capture that that moment. Um, but like you know, it's funny as well. Like one of the other things that I really go to when trying to describe this is. Um, uh, the Rage Against the Machine album. Uh, I think it's the first one where, like, I've been trying to trying to remember exactly what track it is. I should have um, should have had this lined up, but like, <laughs> um, <laughs> that way, as like you can hear yeah. him screaming into the microphone and like moving away from the microphone at the same time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's like, to me, that sound puts a mental image in my mind of someone jumping and dancing in the, mm. in the studio. Cause that's, that's how they play. Right. They're just mm-hmm. vibing with each other. And like it's a, a, it's a weird connection to make Rage Against the Machine and and, and Mingus. I don't but. think it's that weird of a connection. There's <laughs> definitely there's definitely a, a through line between those two acts. I wouldn't be surprised at all if people from Rage, like if Tom Morello is a, mm. a Mingus fan, that that wouldn't surprise me at all. Yeah, um, yeah. There's definitely a sense of there's a sense of the space. There's you can hear it in the mix. For sure. Blues and Roots, I listen to in mono anyways. I think Mm. these records sound really good in mono. There's a kind of stacking that happens. And I think what they're doing, I think the way they recorded these records was there weren't that many mics. They definitely didn't close mic each individual Mm. horn. They've got basically a full sax section, so tenor, tenor, alto, alto, berry on Blues and Roots, and then a couple trombones. Never any trumpets, at least in these Mingus bands, which I always appreciated. Jackie McLean on alto basically being the lead trumpet, but there's Mm. no trumpet. And I think they like had people actually physically move in the space depending on whether they were soloing or in the ensemble. Mm. And you can kind of hear it when you listen. Uh, Monin's a great example of that. All 
Art Pepper's super out front at first, then he kind of falls back. You can really hear it's not perfectly mixed because they're almost mixing it live in the room. It mm. doesn't have that super hyper mix. If you listen to like a snarky puppy record now, mm. there's this super clean mix where like each part is just beautifully presented across the stereo field and you can hear everything very cleanly. All the harmonies are just, just so. In this, it's not that way at all. Mm. Then the, the performances, like you said, listening back to Blues and Roots uh, before talking with you, the first time I'd listened to the record in a while, mm. it's so chaotic. I mean, yeah. connecting back to what we were talking about with John Williams in those early Star Wars scores, there are mistakes all yeah. over the place. I mean, the <laughs> band just falls apart. Yeah. The time, especially in some of these to- uh, stop time sections, um, it's, uh, what's his name, Booker Irvin, the tenor player. He'll be playing just... You know, you can tell what he's doing. You can hear his time, mm. but he stretches his time out or just frankly loses the time. Like he just slows down compared to what the rhythm section is doing. Mm. And they just are all listening to one another mm-hmm. and they are, they stay together. They hold it. They hold the groove, you know, from from chorus to chorus. So it all works. Um, it just you kind of feel them listening to each other. You feel them reacting to one another. Yeah. And it makes the whole thing feel so much more alive than if they had done it perfectly, you know. Like, God forbid if they'd been playing with a click or something. Yeah. But even if they had just been totally, you know, if they had rehearsed so much that they had the music completely perfect. This feels like they rehearsed just enough to get the music where they could play it from start to finish. And then he's like, all right, do it. Like, yeah. we're just recording it. This is spontaneous music. We're going to make it happen. And that is really special. That's not something that I hear almost ever, really, from any era of music. Completely, completely agree. And I also read that um, uh, he didn't use charts. He hummed the music to to the... That would make sense. It had a it has a very kind of it, it feels like that way to me. So that that wouldn't surprise me. And 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 you know like actually weirdly one of my favorite results of that um is is the the track you mentioned before which is from not from not from Blues and Roots but from um um <laughs> um uh, <laughs> uh the uh, goodbye pork pie hat is you've mm. got which is essentially a lead for two saxophones. And they play wrong notes. Like, I, I don't know. Whether... There's one note. Yeah. Man. Oh, man. I, I have a whole I have a whole take on this note. But go ahead. Yeah. Well, <laughs> say I, what I'm, you think I'm pretty it. sure I'm about to play the same. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's the one. I mean, it's the one dissonance because they're playing an actual unison through the whole thing. I love that. One of my favorite moments in all of recorded music. <laughs> I love it so much as well. Like, yeah. how good is it? It's just, um, I don't even know. Like, it's. I remember hearing that for the first time and kind of being like, oh, oh, okay. And then eventually being like, oh, wait, so you're allowed to do that? Like... <laughs> 
So okay, so that's Booker Irvin and um, Shafi Hadi mm. playing tenor sax, sounding beautiful. Hard thing to do playing that absolute unison, right? Like mm. keeping it pretty in tune. I played this tune when I was in high school, my high school big band. We played Goodbye Pork Pie Hat, and I think I was playing lead alto, but I played. Maybe I was playing tenor because I played the melody, so it must have been written for the tenors. Mm. And the chart had that dissonance. There's this half-step dissonance on a single note cool. where you're in perfect unison and then there's just this half-step. Mm. And seeing it written down is almost counter to the spirit <laughs> of that dissonance. And I remember at the time coming up with this whole theory, well, this song is about Lester Young, who, you know, was an addict and had a really hard life, but he mm. played this beautiful music. So maybe that dissonance like reflects the one mm. point of darkness in his life, which I think is just dramatically overthinking the whole thing. <laughs> and it's just as likely that there was just a mistake. Yeah. And and whether whatever it is, whether it was on purpose or not, and they do repeat it when they play the melody on the way out. So it could have been on purpose or it could have been a mistake that they just did consistently. <laughs> everything about the performance of that song. I mean, everything about the performance of all of these songs on these records, that the looseness, the sort of willingness to just let the music be in the moment. There's an unselfconsciousness, I guess, that mm. I really struggle to find when the tape is rolling. When I'm in the room with people, I'm constantly thinking about... Am I matching? Am I in tune? Am mm. I making any mistakes? The idea of playing half-step dissonance or in the examples of some of these other songs, like getting my timing just totally off from everybody else, having it just kind of fall apart to where we need to just pull it back together at one at the start of the next course. Like The idea of that is really terrifying. Mm. And it's liberating to listen to people who just are just playing. Like it's totally fine. The music yeah. is, as it turns out, the music is totally fine. You don't need to worry about it. Yeah. Uh, I Yeah. You've expressed that beautifully. I, you know, and I think the only other thing that I would add is that to me, it just seems very of its moment in time in that the one thing that I would say that <clears throat> that Mingus Aram is better than Roots, uh, Blues and Roots is the album cover. Blues and Roots has this nice photo of, of, of cool. Mingus yeah. playing, uh, playing, playing his upright bass, but... Um, uh, um, which is perhaps more in keeping with other Mingus covers, has this beautiful... I, should, I don't even know who... who did the artwork, but it's a kind of modern artwork um, of geometric patterns and colors kind of loosely. Do you know who painted. it is? It's S. Neil Fujita wow. uh, is the, is the painter. I only know that because I was reading about this album yeah. earlier today and saw that. And like, to me, I just think that this music beautifully reflects that moment in visual art as well. Right. Where it's not about perfection. It's not about, you know, Art, visual art has moved beyond the need to capture the world around us in a in a optical sense, right? We've moved away from mm -hmm. from reproducing what the eye sees to reproducing other things, ideas, what the mind sees, um, what we mm -hmm. feel emotionally, or perhaps in the case of some artwork of that time and later, just embracing the kind of way that art is is made, you know, like action painting and, um, you know, th those kinds of, of works, right? Is that the kind of the process becomes the end result. And I think that actually this is a this is this is so wonderfully reflective of that with with Mingus in that it, it is about creating music that is not concerned with playing perfectly but rather capturing something else that maybe music can be about more than just are we in time are we playing exactly as it was written um, what else can we do here um, mm. I, I, yeah and I think you know like to some degree that also plays in with uh, gosh I don't know you know some of the contemporary classical of the time as well you know um, 
with uh, with a composer like Morton Feldman, who's kind of mm. the you know the 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 cool art composer's cool art composer of the time, but you know <laughs> his work uh, Rothko Chapel, which is responding directly to Rothko's paintings. Um, and you know, I, I yeah, I just think it's such an interesting thing, and you know, but I, you know, wh- while while perhaps some of that other music that I've been talking about is um, much more intellectual than than emotional um, in terms of a listener's experience, anyway. I mean, I just think the thing that's so beautiful about Mingus is that it just works so well on multiple levels. You, you can just enjoy it for what it is, um, straight up. No, it's true. It's such an iconic sound, and and stands in an, in like an interesting place among the sort of broader uh, the broader musical world of 1959. Mm-hmm. I think of this as a 1959 album, even though it was released in 1960. Uh, similar with Giant Steps, Coltrane's Giant Steps, which was released in 60, but recorded in 59. 59, 58 to a lesser extent, but 59, it was this ridiculous year. Listeners of the show, I've mentioned it before, so they probably, a lot of people probably know this, but it was like, you know, 2007 in video games was a great year. 1998, <laughs> great year. 1959, this might actually be a Kotaku article that I wrote that 25 <laughs> people read. Um, that was like, I would have been one of them. Yeah. 1959 was the 2007 in video games of, of jazz yeah. because this is the year that Kind of Blue came out, of course, uh, which I did an episode about, uh, So What? But Shape of Jazz to Come, Ornette Coleman, um, Time Out from the Dave Brubeck Quartet with a very similar album cover, actually. The album cover for Time mm. Out reminds me of the... Um, Album cover. We've got Portrait in Jazz, Bill Evans, Ellington Suites, West Montgomery Trio, Horace Silver blowing the blues away. It just is endless. You mm. can just go and go and go and go. And it was this a really interesting time for kind of hard bop, post bebop, post cool jazz. The cool jazz thing had happened, and it was time for this new era, which would wind up being, I guess, thought of as the hard bop era of the 1960s. And you have all of these artists, Miles Davis, Horace Silver, John Coltrane, Charles Mingus, doing really different things. Mm. I mean, Kind of Blue is introducing this modal sound. Coltrane's experimenting with this really vertical, really complex stuff that he then would move beyond and into the spiritual music almost through the 60s. Everyone's doing something very different. Looking at Mingus and at these two records in that context is really interesting as well, just in the world of jazz. Mm. He was also doing something very, very different. I mean, these records just don't sound at all like any of those other albums. Uh, Mm. The way they were recorded, the way they were performed, the musicians he was using, everything about it, the way the songs were composed. I mean, it's, it's so dramatically different. And yet, it feels inevitable when I look back and I look at all of those records. I'm like, well, yeah, there was a Mingus-shaped hole in all of those <laughs> albums I just said, and he filled it with these two records. Yeah, and I think as well, like in a way, it's a, it's a, it's an end point, uh, which is kind of sad to say. Hmm. Uh, but for the big band, you know, like because the big band, apart from anything, so financially difficult to keep running, you know, during the war and, and post, um, but. Uh, you know, this is kind of taking it to, yeah, that kind of almost impressionist level from Duke Ellington and, you know, who Mingus is, is so devoted to. Um, uh, but, you know, the, the, the big band, I think maybe, maybe there's some history of jazz that I don't know about. And I'm about to offend a million people out there listening, but I feel like the big band sort of from this point goes into it's a, it's a historic mode of playing. Like you're kind of, you know, tracking into his, his, 
you know, we're reliving uh, a certain music that was popular. Um, yeah, I'd say like at least through the 60s and the 70s, as rock and roll became dominant. Mm. This is I'm going off the dome here. So this is I'm working <laughs> with you. We're you and I are, are thinking out loud here. Yeah. But yeah, it feels like the small ensemble really mm. became the dominant sound and the really large, you know, huge. I mean, especially even bigger than Mingus's band with like four trumpets, four trombones, full sax section, full rhythm section. Mm. That band falls out of favor or falls out of fashion for a while. You still got like Stan Kenton, you still got Ellington doing stuff. Mm. And then you get into in the 80s, I mean, Buddy Rich's band through the 60s. 70s and 80s, it becomes a different thing. Buddy Rich is great. Stan Kenton's band was great. You get Maynard's band as a similar thing to Buddy's band where Maynard Ferguson, of course, um, Mm. where it's more about this like shock and awe kind of like overwhelming chops everybody in the band's an all-star super shredding powerful thing that's really really fun Mm. but is a very different mode than the kind of big band stuff you were talking about the early stuff especially Basie and Ellington Mm. that then you know kind of gave way to to just sort of wasn't as as in the forefront I guess through the 50s and well especially through the 60s and 70s yeah and I think especially what I was thinking of like even as you know, late as like the, the the 90s like you know Marsalis Winter Marsalis and the Jazz at Lincoln Center mm-hmm. Orchestra where it, it is kind of a it, it, almost like de- devotional like he was a great era of music that we are keeping yeah. alive keeping the flame alive right whereas mm-hmm. Mingus is engaged with that history but he's doing something different you know he's not just that's really true it's an interesting thing like to listen to um open letter to duke from uh, um Mm. where he is purposefully channeling the sound of duke ellington And to compare that to something that Lincoln Center does. Lincoln Center, by the way, amazing band. I actually oh, just yeah. saw them in, in, I guess this was a year and a half ago. They came out to Portland and played. Wow, what a, I mean, incredible stuff. A lot of Ellington repertoire. They, they, this is Wynton Marcellus's band. Um, and they do a whole Ellington thing. And it's all about that, about maintaining the legacy of Duke Ellington. They play original stuff. And the original stuff is great. But it is very, very different and kind of interesting to compare it to, yeah. to the kind of sort of this like the kind of tribute that Mingus was playing or uh, doing at this his time and and I should say actually Winter Marsalis I think is in Melbourne right now uh he's oh, really? been here for the premiere of an orchestral work that he's written called All Rise uh and oh, he was nice. here I think just before the pandemic when he also premiered his, or there was the premiere recording, I don't know if it was a premiere, it might not have been, but the premiere recording of his first symphony, uh, which was recorded by the MSO with Nick Buck from Out of the Score as the conductor. Oh, really? So, yeah. Oh, that's so cool. It's wow. A, it's Go a great ahead, album. Nick. That's yeah. cool. Yeah. Um, he comes to Portland a lot because, do you know Monette trumpets? The He plays a Monette right, trumpet. Yeah, yeah. It's the type of this beautiful incredibly beautiful trumpet that he plays. Uh, Dave Monette lives in Portland mm. and the Monette factory is here. So Winton will be just be in town because he loves Monette trumpets. They'll make him a new one every few years. Mm. And he comes by. I was actually with some friends from Monette at that show. Cool. And uh, they always sit up in the back so they can really hear his trumpet <laughs> you know, as well as possible in the back of the theater, which awesome. is, is pretty cool. Awesome. <laughs> Thank you. 
Nice. Well, we've gone super long. Um, <laughs> that we could go. We could talk about so many more things, um, and we'll have to have you back on the show because this has been a real pleasure. But um, I think we should probably wrap up. So I always ask guests to pick three things that they're listening to <laughs> that they can um, that they can recommend for listeners. Now it's a little unfair because you've already recommended so many things for <laughs> listeners to listen to, and you know, down in the show notes, you will find a, a massive list of all of the stuff that we talked about and listened to on this episode. So go listen to all of that. But yeah, have you got any uh, any music that you that you'd like to share here with listeners? Uh, yeah, well, I mean, uh, one John Williams score that we did talk about which I, I actually still return to quite a lot even though I at first listen did not think I would which is not his most recent but his second most recent which is uh, The Fablemans um, which um, still haven't seen that movie and really really want yeah to. I just think it's it's a beautiful film um, and it's yeah, such a shame that, that it, it it really you know did not do that well at the box office but I, I think you know Spielberg has probably run up, run up enough uh Home yeah. runs in his career that that he can take a yeah people a, still take his calls <laughs> yeah 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 uh, yeah uh, even though as well like uh, West Side Story I mean kind of pandemic related but West Side Story also uh, was mm-hmm. was quite a, a box office failure where I think that's probably one of his best films ever a beautiful film I agree um, really, really amazing but yeah the Favorites is lovely and there is very little music in it uh, original mm. music there's quite a lot of um, needle drops and classical music because it's partly about Spielberg's mother. I mean, it's very um, lightly disguised, but it's it's uh, autobiographical. It's about his mother, who was a pianist. Um, so there's a lot of piano mm-hmm. in the film. Um, and, uh, you know, I just think it's a really beautiful example of what I was talking about before of John Williams having that emotional sensibility because there's probably 20 minutes of his music in the movie. Um, mm. I'm surprised that it was eligible for an Academy Award nomination, which it got. I think it was John... Oh, I haven't looked at this in a while. I think it's n- number 53, perhaps, for John Williams' um, nomination. Wow. Yeah, more, <laughs> more than anybody Good else luck. in history except for <laughs> Walt Disney. It'd be wild to even compose 53 scores. I know. <laughs> Let alone get nominated for 53 I'd be happy Oscars. with one. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Wouldn't we all? Uh, but, um, uh, yeah, wild that it kind of made through the, the Academy's quite tight um, mm. eligibility criteria. But um, it's just, it's such a beautifully spotted film. And there is this main melody, which I think would fall foul of William's... Um, you know, the, the usual criticism that it's maybe a bit emotionally syrupy and whatever, but it, it actually plays once in the whole movie at this really key mm. juncture late in the film. I, I definitely won't spoil it, but just a very simple piano piece um, that I found myself returning to precisely because it is exactly what the movie needs at that moment, no more, no less, mm. and it's it's just perfectly judged. I also, um, because I, I uh, run the, the soundtrack show that I, I mentioned before, I get the opportunity to listen to a lot of film music uh, on a weekly sure. basis. In fact, after this, I've uh, got to go to the studio and uh, do do this week's show. But um, 
uh, one score that I also keep returning to recently uh, is uh, is a super interesting one uh, because it's not by a composer who we usually associate with uh, film or TV. It's a TV show. It's Flashman is in Trouble, uh, which I actually haven't even seen the the TV show that it's... No, I've heard of it, but I haven't seen it either. Yeah. Um, but the music is by Carolyn Shaw, who... Um, oh. <laughs> is a, a like a, I think like a Pulitzer Prize winning contemporary uh-huh. classical composer like I think she otherwise turns up on Mozart in the Jungle as like one of their celebrity mm-hmm. cameos. Yeah, I think that's where I yeah, where I learned who she was. Yeah, uh, and her, you know, her most famous piece is the Partita for Eight Singers, which is this cool like um yeah, super interesting bit of, and I think like really approachable bit of contemporary classical music. Um, and anyway, the album is uh, the, the the soundtrack. I mean, it, you know, it's it's kind of a bit of a coup to get this person who has legit credibility in the contemporary <laughs> classical yeah. music world to do a, a TV show. I think it's HBO, which probably oh no, it's FX. So there you go. Yeah, I think it was an FX. I was um, going to say Hulu, but then FX is basically Hulu to all of us. Y- these yeah. Days. <laughs> But it's like, it's just a really interesting and unusual soundtrack. Uh, and it's got like, I'm looking now, like on Spotify, it's got like basically no plays, uh, which is which is a real pity. So I do recommend- We're going to change that. We're going to give it the strong songs bump. Yeah, this, yeah. This <laughs> cool. Yeah, I, I've been wanting to watch that show. I've heard it's very interesting mm. and um, hadn't heard anything about the music. So that's that makes me want to check it out even more. Yeah. What's your what's your third pick? Uh, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Maybe Nick Buck's uh, conducting of uh, of Linton Marsalis's um, uh, symphony, which I did I did listen to um, the other day. Um, yeah, symphony. Uh, sorry, it wasn't the first. It's symphony number no. four, the jungle. It's called. Um, mm. Recorded, I think, in 2019, but released this year. Um, and it's this, yeah, really, you know, lovely, like jazz inflected, uh, symphony, like, you know, not outright jazz at any moment, but, you know, Masalis, I think is also this super interesting figure who's had this, you know, been able to maintain a, a, a very credible career as a classical performer as well as really a remarkable classical trumpet player. Yeah. And it's, yeah, it's just, it's it's a really, really cool uh, symphony. I, I really enjoyed listening to that a lot, not just because my friend was the conductor. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Well, we'll, um, we'll put links or uh, at least uh, names of all of the stuff that we talked about on this episode down in the show notes so people can go check it out. Man, this was so much fun. We'll definitely have to do it again sometime and um, maybe even meet up in Australia someday or if you're, if you're here in the States, Likewise, uh, Dan Golding, this was so much fun. Thanks for coming on Strong Oh, uh, It was my actual pleasure. Thank you so much for having me, Kirk. 
And that'll do it for my conversation with Dan Golding. That was so much fun, and I hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we enjoyed having it. Thanks so much to Dan for taking the time to come on the show and just for bringing so many interesting examples and having so much to say. I hope some of you will check out his work. He makes so many great podcasts. He does so much good work in the worlds of music and video games. If you like strong songs, it's a pretty safe bet that you will dig some of what he's up to. You can find links to a bunch of Dan's work, along with a cheat sheet for all of the music that we talked about on this episode down in the show notes. Thank you all so much, as always, for listening to Strong Songs, and a special thanks to all of my patrons, everyone who supports the show on Patreon. Remember, this is entirely funded by listeners. That's the only way that I make money on Strong Songs, so I really do rely on you all chipping in to help me keep making this show, to make it possible for me to dedicate as much time to this show as I think that it deserves. So if you want to chip in, if you want to help me make Strong Songs, go to patreon.com slash strongsongs and join up. All right, that'll do it for now. That was a lot of editing because this was a pretty long episode, so I'm going to take a break. Take care, keep listening, and I'll see you all in two weeks for more Strong Songs. Strong Songs.